be in a couple of your, uh, your uh, podcasts. Come on, people. Don't you want to be better than Jacob Benjamin at something? He listens to one podcast. You can listen to two. It's the last chance to join the Supporters Club for 50% off. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe. Enter the code GOAT50 for new subscribers. You'll get bonus podcasts, free t-shirt, and much more. Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. On this week's show, talk about Mary Kane. Her lawsuit against Nike and Alberta Salazar has been settled. Morgan Beetlescope and Wayne Kalati have won the Manchester. Turkey Trot. Beetlescope has won even bigger off the track. 2022 USATF tax returns are in. And USATF has lost big, more than $6 million. But Max Stiegel... He still got paid. BU 5000 is this weekend. We'll have some predictions. Valencia Marathon. Joshua Cheptega is also this weekend. Plus, a Japanese teen has completed the quadruple and now has the under 20 records at 1,500, 3,000, 5,000, and 10,000. And did you know there's a high school team in Japan with six sub 14 runners on it? All of that and more, including a very special interview at the end of the show, when we'll be joined by NCA cross-country champion Graham Blanks of Harvard, who shares the details of his training, chasing the Olympic standard at BU this weekend, and much more. Unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, we want to hear from you. Give us a call, 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786. This is Let's Run, not co-founder Robert Johnson, the most interesting voice in all of track and field because you said something very interesting i guess your opinions are very different I'm joined as always by my two sub 30 minute 10,000 meter runners and a staff writer jonathan galt of dartmouth and former marine corps marathon champion and electron co-founder weldon johnson guys welcome to the show how are we today i'm good robert my eyes have Stopped bleeding after watching the Giants beat the Patriots 10 7, one of the worst football games in NFL history. I don't think that's too hyperbolic to say over Thanksgiving weekend. So, yeah, no one's really Jonathan Gold of Dartmouth. That's kind of, I'm 10 years out of college at this point. I feel like I'm better known for my exploits at let'srun.com, but I guess I'll take it. And who can I just be clear on this? Who appointed you the most interesting voice in track and field? That was a self-given title. I mean, given what's happened in the last 365 days, it seemed to be true. I'm a little bit worried that my mom may be listening to the podcast this week since we have Grant Blanks, who's the great nephew of one of her best friends. So yeah, I wanted her to know my stature in the sport. But I mean, we have had three stars in the last year, all in one way or another, admit like, wow, what you said is pretty amazing. Crazy. Yeah, interesting. I think sometimes is being used as a euphemism here, but I'll I'll give you that. Michael Johnson and Jakob Ingebrigtsen both called you interesting. And 
after months of claiming to be working on this soundboard. You say you spend hours every week trying to put it together. It never, ever works. It does appear to be working now. You've already used a couple of them. I'm a little worried you're going to get drunk with power and this is just going to be, this whole podcast will be nothing but sound bites. But that's what we got well then to edit it out if necessary. But I, I got a kick out of it. I think that's a nice little thing, like nice little zinger to throw in there if you make a good point, Robin. Thank you, John, for mentioning me. For the record, it is the Manchester Road Race, not the Manchester Turkey Trot. I'm saying this, I'm going to annoy myself the race director because it went off without a hitch of the Rowayton Turkey Trot, the number one Turkey Trot in Connecticut. I'm not going to say we're better than the Manchester Road Race, but I helped put on the local Turkey Trot in my town. Record turnout. Nearly 25% people more than last year. And the first runner did not run off course. I was paranoid that was going to happen. They assured me, the fire department, volunteer fire department assured me they always lead the way with the fire truck. And there's some narrow turns. And I'm like, no way. I don't trust you guys. So I went in the cop car ahead of the fire truck. You know what happened to the fire truck? It got stuck on the course at one point. So... Having led road races in the past, I'm like, you can always go off course. So any other race directors want to give me tips? Maybe we can get the 2,000 runners next year. After that, it seems crazy. Like, we just hand out water. It's a 5K. That's it. It's a true turkey trot. But I kept it. Everyone stayed safe, and everyone stayed on course. So win-win. Congrats, Weldon. I'm glad that. We still covered the Manchester road race on let's run.com. I'm a little worried if your event keeps growing, you know, there's going to be competition. There's only room for one big time road race on Thanksgiving day in Connecticut. So are you coming for them? Are you okay to see the number one spot to Manchester and you'll, you'll, you're content with number two. John in life, you should never really be content with being number two, right? But having help with this thing, I appreciate all the race directors out there who have prize money and do that because that money's got to come from somewhere. We probably netted about 40K for charity. But for right now, I'll say we're number one. We're the, we're the prettiest 5K turkey trot in Connecticut. There's no way you can beat us. That's what we're... we're I, there's no way the Manchester Road races... More scenic than our road race. Our turkey trot, excuse me. I hope his wife's not listening. He just said you can't be content for number two with number two. I hope he's not going for wife number three. John, next week I want to introduce you. Instead of saying Dartmouth, that was poor. We're a podcast of the people. Don't want to have an elitist air to us. Maybe I should say you're the voice preferred by John Generation Z. I agree mostly with him. Put a smile on John's face to hear Yaka Bingham praising him. But for trying to be elitist, Graham Blanks, a kid from Harvard, has won the NCAA Cross Country Championships. If you're a Supporters Club member, you already would have heard your, the interview with him. It came out on Friday. But it's a great talk, guys. You guys did a wonderful job. I wasn't in on it. I talked to Graham before you guys started, but I was blown away by his training. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised that the NCAA champion. Runs a lot, but 
the volume of the hard days was much more than I expected. And the overall volume with only one double is a lot more than I expected. And then I was reading the week that was as well. And NXN is this weekend. And a kid from Felix Exeter, the big prep boarding school, Byron Grievous. Hopefully I'm saying that right. He could be the favorite. Nerds everywhere are going to unite if a kid from Harvard takes down NCAs and then a kid from Exeter takes down NXN. Yeah, I really enjoyed the interview. I thought the training discussion was also pretty enlightening. It Someone on the message board pointed this out well, and then I agree with them. It kind of reminded me of Adam Gouch's training from the 1998 running with the Buffaloes season. Their big philosophy was try to run as much of you, your mileage as possible in singles. And if you read what he was doing every day, there were just a lot of long runs that were hard. And that was all at elevation. I think they were climbing a bit more than you would around Harvard's campus. But it's just a lot of long, hard I mean, six flat pace for Graham Blanks at this point probably isn't all that hard. It was at the start, but a lot of long efforts, all of it pretty fast, and then tough workouts on top of that. And if you can endure that the whole season, you're going to be pretty damn strong at the end. You know, running 100 miles a week in six days, a lot of it really fast. We saw in the running with the Buffaloes, you know, a lot of the Colorado guys did struggle to stay healthy with that kind of training load. But Blanks was able to make it through the whole season. Dude's really, really strong. And by the end of NCAAs, yeah, he was the strongest one left standing. Now, there's a big threat on his training. And there was one sentiment expressed there that was the same sentiment Jonathan Galt expressed to me off air. How do we know he's not lying about his training? I thought about that. It would be genius for some coach, some coach program just to make up their training. Confuse everybody. Get all the other kids in the conference to copy it. Now, he is on Strava, as someone pointed out, so it's kind of hard to fake that. But, John, didn't you tell me you went on the Strava and you didn't see these 90-mile weeks? No, see, Robert, this is – here you go. You tr- you're always digging for a headline. You're trying to make me look bad here. I was looking at his more recent training, and he wasn't doing, like, 100 miles in six days like he said he was. And then I was like, wait a minute. Graham was kind of talking about that was what we were doing earlier in the season when we are laying a foundation. He wasn't talking so much about the last month. So then I went back a few months earlier to, like, August, September – and he, it was exactly what he said he was doing. So I don't think he was lying. He's got all this stuff on Strava. It's a fascinating thing to look through. Also, props to Harvard for going out to Bedford, Massachusetts, my hometown, doing a bunch of their training on those trails out there. I always thought they were quite nice places to run when I was growing up. Did a lot of my high school and college training over the summers there. It's kind of cool to see an NCAA champion trained on the same r- trails I was running. I need to start my weekly coaching segment. With John Kellogg, I want to have like a you know here a dear Aaron Landers or Caroline Hacks advice column, dear distance gurus, because this would be a good topic for it. I never understood what, like what sex minute pace does. Like John did worry about like stride frequency on your easy days, but six minute pace like it's not it's not threshold for somebody that good. I mean, I guess you get the mileage in a little bit quicker, but it's not. 
Well, I, I always thought, heard growing up, Robert, that was referred to as junk mileage because it wasn't easy enough to totally recover, but it wasn't hard enough to get the same benefits as a hard day. So I think the real person we need to have on is Alex Gibby because we asked Graham about this later in the show, not to spoil everything. And he's basically like, you know, just ask Gibby. That's I don't know why we do our easy days that quickly, but it's just something we've done under him. So I think it would be good to talk to Gibby about that and what his philosophy is behind it because I did hear the same things growing up as you did, Robert. I love the talk. The problem is now a bunch of kids are going to go out and try to copy the training. <laughs> I mean, that's how it works. Like, oh, I got to do my longer runs faster. And some people pointed out in the thread, there's another kid on the team, Easter Iverson. I think he's one year ahead of Graham. 40th at NCA two years ago, 50th last year, 97th this year. So the similar training doesn't necessarily lead to improvement for everybody every year. There's various factors that go into it. You know what I'm saying? Like, obviously, this training is working amazingly well from Graham. I'm not trying to knock Acer Iverson. He's a really good runner. I mean, he's like, I think Harvard's number three or something this year, and he's in the top 100 NCAs. Shows how well their team is. What a good job Coach Gibby is getting these guys. Um, but, you know, some people are essentially saying, like, well, maybe that kid shouldn't be running as hard in those easy days and doing something easier. Like, uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Do you guys know who the first semi-elite to share his training online was? Elite Collegian. Back in the day. Tom McConnell. Dartmouth Zone. Former, is he, he could be, yeah, I don't think he's still the Ivy League record holder of 10,000, is he? No, uh, he, he held it for a long time, but I think Matthew Pereira of Harvard actually broke that record, and then Graham Blanks would have, it. I mean, he'd have a great shot to break it as well, but for a long time, my suddenly the entire time I was in college, Jim Sapienza had the Ivy League 5K record at 13.30 and Tom McArdle had the Ivy League 10K record at 28.18. Okay. Nike Oregon project member. Tom McArdle. Man who introduced me to my wife. Okay, one last thing about turkey trots before we actually get into this week's news. What do Myler, Sam Prankle, and Weldon Johnson have in common? They've both finished fourth at USA's. Ooh. Is that, a, is that a zing or a compliment? I guess because neither one of them was that good in college, right? To finish fourth at USA is mean? kind of a compliment. Sam Prakel was like NCAA finalist. He was a good college miler. I, I don't. I I was just trying to answer the question. Sam Prakel was fourth at USA's in the fifteen this year, and Weldon Johnson was fourth at USA's. They have that in common. There, I went. They also are forever will be known as. Winners of the YMCA Dallas Turkey Trot. Weldon, this is a race to like 10,000 plus people in Dallas. When you're growing up, it's like a big deal. Weldon won it one time. Sam Preco is this year's winner. Not sure why he was in Dallas, Texas. Over Thanksgiving. He might have won in the past. Gets the eight-mile win in 38-23. It's one of the things on the bucket list, right? You got to win your turkey trot. You think at age 50, I could win my turkey trot if I started training again? What was the winning time this year? I think 1650. That's funny. I don't even know. I think about 1650, maybe 1635. 
second place. Yeah, I don't think so. Well, then second place was like, was my neighbor. He's like 1730. 1730, maybe, but you'd need to start training like pretty seriously. What if I take down the mile kids race? I mean, that's just embarrassing for all involved. Uh, all right. Okay. One thing I look, it's turkey trot season. This is not a time of the year when most pros are in their tip top shape, unless you're running the Valencia Marathon this weekend. But the Manchester Road Race did prompt some thinking in my mind because for those who missed it, Morgan Beadlescombe got the win. It was a kick between him and Connor Mance at the very end. And after the race, Morgan proposed to his girlfriend and she said yes. So great Thanksgiving, you know, great story for him. Very nice month. He gets the win at the US 5K championships, doesn't get run over by a bus, and then comes and wins in Manchester as well. And from the story in the Hartford Current by Lori Riley, it was interesting because she had a quote from Mance who had warmed up with Beetlescum and Beetlescum had told him he was planning on proposing to his girlfriend after the race. And Mance said, I had a half second thought I could let up because it's his day. But then I was like, no, I flew all the way here. My wife's in the truck. I go to win. And he still pulled away. So I was like, wow, even Connor Mance, who I view as like this warrior and all out mentality, briefly considered letting him win. I was like, no, screw it, which I think is, obviously the right decision. But my question to you guys, if Morgan Beelscombe got out kicked at the end by Connor Mance, who's not really known as a big kicker, certainly not compared to Beelscombe, who is an NCAA runner-up in the mile. If you get out kicked in a race like that, do you still propose to your girlfriend? Do you still go through, even with the taste of defeat lingering in your mouth? Absolutely. I think you, I think actually he should only propose when he loses. See if she's there for you, for you, and at your low points, not just when you're on top of the worlds and getting that big first place check. Would you propose if you just got blown, your doors blown off by someone at the end of a race? Maybe this is a foolproof proof way to make sure you run well. All self doubt will be gone. You're just like, I have to run well today. There's no other option. If I got my doors blown off at a turkey trot, I think it's low-key. You, you could do it, you know. She's there. It's the holiday spirit. It's a, it's a good event to pick. You know, if it's like the Olympic trials, and you're like, you've been all invested your whole life. You just missed the team, and you're like, uh, then you might be so bummed. Could you separate the emotions? What do you guys think about the public engagements in general? My wife told me specifically not to make sure. She was afraid that I might try to do some cheesy baseball game or something but i don't know like can you really trust it like they they kind of have to say yes right like are they really gonna turn you down publicly humiliate you in front of like her i think both sets of like parents were there there's like thousands of onlookers if she's having any doubts and she's a quality person she just says yes there and then quietly afterwards a week or two later lets you down. Well, it isn't really a brave thing because you're risking it all. You don't care what happens. You know this is the one. I think 
the first lesson here, Robert, is you should only be asking, will you marry me, if you know the answer will be yes. That should be something you should have spent enough per- time with this person. There should, no shouldn't really be an option. So you should be sure. And if you're sure, I feel like there are certain limits. A road race, at the end of a road race, it's perfectly fine. That's great. Like there are certain public spaces where it's all right to do it. There are two main rules, I would say, in this sort of situation. One, you don't want to be stealing someone's thunder. So don't propose at like someone else's celebration or something like that. You know, you don't want to make their event about you. Number two, don't do like spectators of a sporting event, like Jumbotron or something. I, I see this all the time. I don't know. Maybe, it, like, certainly if it's someone in your case, Robert, whether your girlfriend is saying, do not propose to me in a public setting, uh, just honor their wishes, don't do that. But even in general, I feel like you want to have this thing be about you and this is your time to celebrate and, like, afterwards you can, like, clink a glass of champagne or something. Like, if you're proposing in the fourth inning of a regular season baseball game, are you just going to sit there for the rest of the game or... Do you now have to leave the game and go celebrate? Are you going to have friends and family around you? Like, to me, that's just, there's so many bad things about it. You're putting this, it doesn't have to be a totally private moment, but a special moment, just being broadcast to 30,000 strangers on the big screen. I don't know. To me, I I wouldn't want to do that at all. So those are my two recommendations. Don't do a big sporting event like that and don't do it at someone else's special event. Very wise advice. I know there's podcast listeners thinking, how in the world is that guy still single? That's what I wonder every day, John. You're a catch. You're a catch. My wife says it every day to me. Every day? That's a little weird. But uh, well, not every day. But... I appreciate the support. Okay. Oh, we should also mention Wayne Collardi won the women's race here. She's basically, she's the queen of Manchester at this point. She's won it three years in a row. She has the three fastest times. She won by 38 seconds in this race. So congrats to her. Manchester's interesting because they kind of have some prominent U.S. names every year. I heard they actually limit the field to the message board. They claimed only two non-Africans. I guess they could just have U.S. only prize money. How do you only limit it to two? But it's no one really cares again who's in shape for the 5K November 28th. But I do want to say this, like Beatles come out kicking Mance, as you said, John, isn't a surprise, but I was like, it's just kind of amazing. Like how deep the U S is right now in some of these events, like, and then let's run. We were really focused on like the top guy, the number one guy, top three. Like if you're like, maybe going to make a U.S. team, you're not going to get on the podcast a lot, a lot of mentions. But I was like, well, what has Beatlescombe done since college? You know, and see a runner up in the mob. And then I looked it up. Like, and it's like, I'm like, oh, he's only 13th at USA's last year in the 5,000. But like the race before that, like a week or two before that, he runs 1308 PB. You know, like, how did, oh, he must have bombed USA's. How does he get 13th? But Emmanuel Bohr, who's run 13th flat, was 15th. Connor Mance was 10th. Woody Kincaid is 9th. <laughs> you know, so some good guys. Yeah, that was a deep field this year. I do think Morgan had a bad race at USA's, but it's that's a fair point. Sh- should I reveal that I don't even know who the sixth placer is at USA's, or is that going to make me look bad? I'm sure you do, John. Was it Ahmed Muhammad? 
He was eighth. Who was sixth then? I'm trying to think. Who, or in my mind, who was sixth place that Robert Johnson wouldn't know? Oh, wow. I can't remember who was sixth off the top of my head. What's his name? I think I actually mentioned this in the week that was. Now then, see, I, I I don't remember names sometimes, but I remember the people. Sam Gilman. Oh, okay, yeah, Air Force runner. Okay, that was I had. Yeah, no, I mean <laughs> he hasn't done that much. It's not like he's been contending for NCAA titles, but he was a good collegiate runner at Air Force. So I'm seeing that result. I'm like, who is that? And I actually mentioned him in the week that was the time because he was 15th at NCAs, and then took a lot of scalps at USA's. If we're going to continue to talk about action that happened last week, down week in the U.S., so I had to go to Japan to find some races. They had their women's corporate academy. Rob, I'm going to cut you off right there. We don't need to talk about the women's corporate academy. I looked at, I read this in the week that was. I didn't recognize any of the names. None of the really times make that much of an impression on me. They're running marathons. For the, To be clear, they're running marathons here slower than the best woman in the world. The winning time of this six-leg marathon relay was 2.13.33. So it's basically six Japanese women equal one Safan Hassan. So I don't really know if we need to talk that much about it. I wasn't actually going to talk about them, but since you brought it up, I will talk about it. I think it'd be fascinating to have Tidget Asefa just versus the entire, get all the best in America, all the best in the U.S., and we have a road race like Asefa, maybe Hassan versus these relay teams. It'd be great drama. And it reminds me of a thing I put up on the message board. Did you know that a, three Japanese soccer players played a group of 100 kids? It's an amazing YouTube video. Yeah, that's we'll that shows the difference between our generations, Robert. Everyone my age has seen this YouTube video. It is amazing, but I'm kind of it's kind of funny you're only learning about it now. But the reason why I was talking about Japan is I wanted to talk about 19-year-old sensation Kita Sato, Kamazawa University. Ran his last race probably as an under-20 athlete last week. 27-28.5, negative split. And this guy now has every Japanese under 20 record, 1,500 through 10,000. He's not quite Niels Leros, but he's pretty damn good. 337.18 at age 17. He ran that two years ago. That's, and for Japan, I mean, what is their national record in the 1,500? That might be his most impressive mark to me. 750 and 800, also in 2021. 1322.91. From 2022 at age 18, and now 27, 28, 50 in 2023. I mean, he's a superstar in Japan. I am a little bit concerned. Like to me, some of his more impressive stuff happened two years ago. That's 27, 28, he's the fifth fastest ever in Japan. But they're just kind of limited by their speeds. But this guy, I, I was, I, I, I was seeing that he was running in on shoes. So I texted Jordan Donnelly, podcast listener of On. I was like, but he's got like a Nike singlet. I'm like, how does it work in Japan? And he's like, uh, Jordan's like, oh, it's kind of like the U.S. You can, he's got a small deal with with on. You know, he was training the summer with OAC in Europe for much of the summer, but it's kind of like, you know, it's not a big deal. It's like a, it's like an NIL type deal. Like he can wear his own shoes. I guess it's a little bit different than the U.S. because in the U.S. the college kids have to wear the shoes in the races. In Japan, you can wear whatever shoes you want, but you have to wear the university singlet. Well, they. A few things on this. 27-28 at age 19 is amazing. 
The U.S. under-20 record for comparison is 28-15. That's Galen Rupp from 2005. I mean, that's, that's really, really good endurance at that age uh, for a non-African-born athlete. We obviously have had some African-born athletes run significantly faster. But I'm looking at that. I, my natural comparison, I always want to compare these things to NCAAs. Like, how many NCAA kids could run 27-28 for 10K? Like, could Graham Blanks, who is two years old than this guy, do it right now? I think it would be close. Like, what do, you, what do you guys think? I think someone from the NCAA, if you put them in the fitness they're in right now for cross-country and had a fast track race like this, I think someone would do it. Because if you look at the all-time list, 27-28 would put you third in the NCAA. But a lot of NCAA kids, the best ones, do not run all-out 10Ks in the spring. They just run marks to qualify for NCAAs. I'm thinking the very best of the NCAA would be around 27-28 right now, but I'm not 100% confident. It's a good hypothetical. I definitely think an NCAA athlete would do it particularly set up this way. I mean, the weather was pristine. It was like 49.5 degrees, like no wind. They had like multiple wave lights. Yeah. And they had a rabbit to go 1348. So that's a negative split. And and the reason I say that is, I mean, his 5,000 PB of 1322 is good, but there's a lot of NCAA athletes that are better than that. Yeah. The runner up at NCAA is Hapton Samuel has run 2720. So I, yeah, I do think if you put Graham Blanks in this race, he probably beats him, but still, for, to do that at 19 years old is tremendous. And the other thing is, he's got two teammates at Kamazawa University who also broke 27.40. So, my other question to you guys is, what is more impressive? Having three kids on the same college team running 27.38 or faster, or a different meet in Japan last week, Saku Chosei High School had a few guys broke 14 a few guys break 14 minutes for 5k. They've now got six guys under 14 minutes for 5000 meters this year. So what's the more impressive accomplishment to you? A high school team with six sub 14 guys or a college team with three guys at 2738 or faster for 10k? The high school to me, but we don't know the situation in Japan. I'm assuming that cannot just be a random group of high schoolers with six of them at 14 flat. Could this be a Newberry Parks type situation where kids from a larger district can choose to go to Newberry Park? Or remember when um, Drew Hunter's mother was coaching in Virginia and kids were moving into the district to, to pick the school? Because that's like having six guys at like, you know, that's like an eight, 14 flat is like 844 in the two miles. So that's like having like six guys at like 840 in the 3200. I mean, that's wild. Yeah, that's my answer too. I think that's the more impressive accomplishment. I am curious how that high school team comes together. And is they, can they take an extra year like they do in Canada? You got 13th grade. I don't know. But if, yeah, we've seen college teams like Stanford last year, Kai Robinson, Charles Hicks, and uh, Cole Sprout had all run sub 2750. I think you put them all in top shape. You know, NAU, I bet, I bet Oklahoma State has guys, three guys who could run. 2740 or thereabouts. So I don't think it's, I'm always comparing stuff to the US. Is there any high school in the US that can have six guys sub 14? I don't think so. The high school thing's more impressive. I mean, maybe there's some recruiting going on at the high school, but I can see, like you said, John, with college recruiting kids, I mean, Stanford's come close. 
in super shoes, you know, I mean, obviously you're affecting both these things, super spikes. I, I think someone in the NCAA could run 27, 28 somehow if we gave them enough time these days. Another thread, we don't need to debate this. But we're doing hypotheticals. Thread is titled, if every NCAA XC champion were all thrown into the same race, who would win? Wait, you say we don't have to debate this? There's no time for hypotheticals? Well, then, it's the end of November. This is, a, I mean, I guess this is a pretty busy week because we've got Valencia Marathon, NXN, BU Meet this weekend. We'll talk about all that on the Friday 15. But this is prime hypothetical season. So I did think about this. I love this question. One name came to mind pretty quickly, and that was Henry Rono. Because he was the best runner in the world in 1978. And he set four records in the span of 81 days, quite famously, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 steeple. The, the only problem is he didn't actually win the NCAA cross country championship in 1978. It was cold and snowy in Madison. And he was like, you know, 200th or something. And he won in 76, 77 and 79. So, I think you probably put like 1979 Henry Rono, give him super shoes and everything. He's breaking any, he's beating everyone else. I don't know if there's anyone else who's breaking world records when they're winning NCAA cross, but he was my pick. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree with that one. And then for the women, I don't really know how to compare the eras, but Sally Kipiego was really good. I kind of like that pick. 2008 Sally Kipiego, she would be my pick as well. I mean, Parker, I think 2023 Parker Valby would do very well, but Kipiego, three years after that race, got the silver medal in the 10,000 at the World Championships. I don't think that's going to happen for Parker Valby. And, well, speaking of Valby, because people were throwing her name out there, and I'm like, well, she gave up a lot of time at the end of this race. She was winning by like 20 seconds, and she ends up winning by like 10 or something. Just second placer, Doris Limgol of Alabama. But now I'm learning Doris Limgol ran 1440 for 5K on the roads this summer. In March. I mean, that's crazy. So yeah. she still smoked her. So Parker Balby might be top five. And Valby beat her by 33 seconds at the SEC meet. Like, yeah, I think Valby is pretty far up there. Robert, what do you say? I like y'all's picks. Rono, for sure. But in 78, John, and there's a thread on this, and let's run. I, it's my understanding that there was a big debate, but he ran off course. He made a wrong turn and then never recovered from it. So I'd like to know he was totally dominant, you know, the rest of the year. But in 79, well, there's some really interesting results here. He won. I was like, well, how much did he win by? He won by almost 18 seconds. I think I've heard of the guy in second place. His name is Alberto Salazar. And when did Salazar win the New York City Marathon and stuff like that? 81. Yeah, so I think 81 through 83. But you've got, I mean, he's beating Sidney Marie. Oh, sorry, 80 he, through 82. So Salazar won the NCAA, sorry, the New York City Marathon the next year. But he's beating Sidney Marie. Admittedly, Marie was like a miler, right, by... Marie was seventh, beats him by almost a minute. Beats Rudy Chapa, who was a star Oregon runner. 10,000 guy, right? 
I think he still Fly has over. the U.S. high school 10K record, right, Rudy Chopper? Yeah, beats him by over a minute. And no, Rudy Chopper was 10th. God. Chris Fox, Syracuse, former Syracuse head coach, now Syracuse assistant, was 11th. Suleiman Niamambu. I think he's an Olympic medalist, right? Suleiman Niambui, yeah. So he, I think he's the other one with a claim here, it's, especially if you're looking for sort of people who were the very best in the world at the time. Suleiman Niambui of UTEP, I mean, he, this guy was 27 years old when he won the 1980 NCAA cross-country title, but he, he won like a million NCAA titles on the track. He won NCAA cross in 1980, a few months after he got the silver medal in the 5,000 at the Olympics. So he would be in the conversation. I mean, Prefontaine back in, he didn't, again, he didn't win in 72. Uh, I think that was because he was redshirting because of the Olympics, but he won in 70, 71, 73. Obviously he was fourth at the 72 Olympics and the 5k. But then, you know, if you're looking at more, re- like who was the best winner since 2000, Ritz in 2003 was pretty good. Rupp in 2008. I mean, Ch- Chalanga was running crazy times. He won in 2010 and 2009. But Lelang was really good. Cesarek, when, I mean, who's going to drop Edward Cesarek in his prime? I guess the answer was Patrick Tiernan. So there are a lot of good champions uh, the last 23 years as well, but none of them were contending for global medals at that time. And for the women, I mean, Kip Yego was a good pick, but we were talking about this a week or two ago. And I just remember when early in my coaching career at Cornell, like Kim Smith would be like minutes ahead of everybody. So I did look up the 20, 2004 NCAA cross country championships, which Kim Smith, Kiwi, running for Providence. She won by 17.9 seconds, which is seven seconds more than Parker Valby did this year. Thank you. For some reason, it was. Not letting me access the results, which I had saved on Track and Field News because I could not remember my login uh, password. So Kim Smith was really good. That's your point, Robert? Correct. I agree. Yes, Kim Smith was really good. Okay. Well, I've told the story before how Chris Fox, the coach, always says he retired when some guy he'd never heard of beat him in a race, and that, that person he never heard of was Welton Johnson. But I can't believe Chris Fox was like, 1979. Like That seemed like a like, – I mean, that's almost 20 years before we went to college. It just seems so ancient. So he must have been like pushing 40 when he lost to Weldon. What's my rule? I want to, what, you know, there's these like sayings on the internet, John. I want to codify my rule that you don't know anything that happened like 15 years before you were in college. Uh, we need to, formally codify this, put a name to it. But like, what are some of those things we bring up on the podcast? You know, I mean, that's a fair assessment. I was shocked that Chris Fox was in that race for a bit because I thought, I know he had a shot to make the Olympic team in 96 and then he was racing against Weldon. But I guess that was towards the tail end of his career. So to think that he was running in the NCAA in, 19, in the 1970s, I was like, wow, he's a little older than I thought. I think the rule is like, you don't really know anything from 10 years from when you graduate before you graduate college, like age 10, 11, 12, like 
I mean, I was born in 83. Weldon was born in 73. I don't really remember anything before 1990. <laughs> Weldon doesn't really remember anything before 1980. All right, let's move from the past to the present. The BU meet this weekend, the fastest college 5K of the year. I feel bad for some of these kids. Like, you used to just be able to run NCAAs and then you party for the next couple of weeks, you hang out, you have a good time, you go home, you eat a lot of food, you don't have to worry about running fast. And now, basically, if you're a top 25 kid in the country, you go to extend your season another two weeks to go and run this time trial at BU. It's not really the, the most exciting prospect, but there should be some fast times in the offing. I mean, almost all of the people... Almost all of the top finishes for NCAA Cross will be there. Parker Valby, Graham Blanks, Drew Bosley, Nico Young. You know, there, there's a lot of big names. Notably, Caitlin Tui is not among the entrants. So, I mean, that to me suggests she might be turning professional. We haven't heard any sort of official announcement yet, but you would think she might show up and run this race she did last year if she was looking to get a qualifier for NCAA indoors. But let's get some predictions out there. We've got the women's race, according to City's Mag, the top heat's going to be paced for 15-12. On the men's side, top heat paced for 13-10. You'll hear later in the show, Graham Blanks was hoping to go off to the Olympic stand, which is 13-05. I want to hear a winner prediction and a winning time for these two events. Women's pace is supposed to be what? 15-12. Should I play the Rojo Ramp music? I wanted to see a 1440s. I was going to predict, I think I did it last year, like Parker Valby, like 1448, but not to go on 15. I guess she's going to run her own pace. It better be under 15. Parker Valby, sub 15, first collegian to do it. But if she's just content to get the time, it's going to anger me. NCAA qualifying time. I actually like this race, John. I'm sorry they can't party, but they get the qualifier out of the way, and it proves that all these people who skip world cross country. By the way, we're having that meet this year in 2024. We're having a world indoors in 2024. It proves that cross country training gets you in sick, sick shape. So I just think 1512 is, is a little bit disappointing. So same thing with 1310. I think you can't kick off that, maybe get under 1305, but <clears throat> sub 14 for Miss Volby. And Tui's not not dumb. I, I I I think you're right. I think she's going pro, and I think this race could only hurt her financially. Numbers we heard that she's asking for on a contract seem absurd to me based on her performance level. And if she gets beat by a number of girls, you're like, okay, she's a brand. She's very popular, but do we want to pay north of half a million dollars a year to somebody who may never make a U.S. team? I'm not saying she's not going to ever make it. I'm just saying that's a possibility. Well, I do think she'd be second in this race behind Parker Valby. I, I do buy that she wasn't at 100% for NCAAs. But yeah, it is a bit of a risk, especially if the big thing is the Olympic team next year. I mean, I guess the one thinking would be if you think you're really in shape to get the Olympic standard, which is 1452, you would run this race. But that's aggressive. And if you're not 100% sure, I'm, I'm okay with that kind of backing off and just say, hey, we'll, we'll try to get it in the spring sometime like that. With Valby, I don't think she'll go for the time. I, which is 
yeah, as a fan, it's a it's a little despite she can do whatever she wants, but as a fan, I think she has to be close to that kind of shape, fourteen fifty two, the Olympic standard right now. So I think she's in sub fifteen shape, but I'm not. I'm saying it doesn't happen, and I think she'll run fifteen oh oh eight. Why wouldn't she go for the time? I mean, if she's worried about qualifying for NCA, she can do that at the conference meet. She can jog, jog whatever it takes to make NCA conference time. I don't know. Maybe they want her doubling or tripling at SECs to win the team title. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, Valby's my pick on the women's side. Men's side, I'm going with the guy who won this race last year. And that is Kai Robinson of Stanford. And I just think Blanks is probably Blanks is fitter for a cross country race right now, but for a track 5K. I do think Kai Robinson's still pretty strong. It's going to be tough to drop him. I think he's got the best kick. So I'm going to pick Kai Robinson. I'll say 13. I mean, there aren't that many guys who've broken 1310. The number's obviously going to keep going up with super shoes, but only four collegians have ever done it indoors or out. I'll see, say 1309 for. Kai Robinson for the win. It's in thirteen oh seven for me. I think it's good to have Tom Samuels in here. He's good at pushing the pace. But Robinson made a mockery of of, of the NCA five thousand ten thousands. He was so much better than everybody else in the kick. So, you know, you said everyone's in it, John. It's like eighteen or seventeen or eighteen of the top twenty NCA men are in here, and for the women, it's not nearly as much. But one thing Alex Gibby told me last week was he's like, I think if you're in top ten NCA. Cross, you can break thirteen ten on a good day. I think about that. I think my question is, can anyone break thirteen? If they're pacing it for thirteen ten, and then you you kick, I could see that. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be totally shocked, uh, especially if someone like Blanks or Samuel really keeps it rolling once the pacer drops out. So, I wouldn't be stunned. I think we're, we've got a, a lot of very good runners in the NCAA at the moment. I think. You know, you look at some of the top finishers from last year, a number of them who are in the top 10 returned this year, like Nico Young and Drew Bosley. I don't think they're any slower than they were in 2022, but they finished lower down because you had guys like Blanks making a leap. You had Samuel coming in. You had Dennis Kepengedich. So I wouldn't be, I would not be stunned if we saw the first college sub 13, given it's BU, given all the talent in this race, but that does require someone driving the pace on once the rabbit drops out. And maybe it's blanks. You know, you'll, as you'll hear, he wants that Olympic standard. So we'll see. But the standard's 1312? 1305. Oh, they're pacing 1312. 1310 is the pacing. See, actually, I mean, the more I think of it, it's like Kai Robinson's going to Olympic team for Australia. So, Maybe 1309, maybe it goes a little faster, but I guess I'll, I like the symmetry of 1509 and 1309, so I'll say that. If they're pacing 1310, I think someone will get the standard kicking, so and they could get close to sub-13. The women's race, no, they're going sub-15. Valby or Doris Limgul, just butchered her name, I think. She's in this race? She is not. Mm, never mind. Damn it, Valby, do it yourself. I want to see a sub-15. Like, sub-15, like, w- w- where women's running is in the NCAA right now, it's 
easy for the dude to say, oh, it's really not that hard. It's never been done before. But like, come on, like this is the the women more so than the men right now in the 5K just aren't competitive with the top U.S. women. So the bar needs to be raised. Women are running. They're going to go sub 14 this year. I guarantee you we have a 13-minute 5K this year in the world. So the college, we need to have a sub 14. And so I am the guy who guaranteed. What are you- well, not guaranteed. I said Ja'Carri Richardson win the 100 meters last year. So you can chalk up the first woman sub 14 minute 5k will be in 2024 sub oh for oh globally okay we're not talking about college gotcha yeah yeah but oh that's a really bold prediction with the world record that was broken twice this year there are five women capable of breaking it i mean yeah go really going out on a limb that the world record is going to go down by one second well johnny but it is kind of shocking both you and i didn't understand what he was talking about at first because he phrased it kind of awkward like 13-minute 5K. Of course the women are going to do that. And then he meant for women. Just shows you how crazy fast it is. Look, we'll talk more about this on Friday. John, I, I need you to text Pete Julian. I'm pleased to see Sinclair Johnson in this field because I was, you know, she got the strength under Jerry Schumacher and then I'm like, okay, that'll help her the first year of Pete, but she kind of took a step back last year. And she's. I was pleased to hear that she was needs. She realized she needed to keep working on her strength. It should be interesting to see. Um. Well, she also got injured in the middle of the season last year. So, like, she was, she ran a 3K at one of the BU meets last year and was still working on her strength. I, not obviously, they don't hammer that stuff as to the same degree that Bauman Track Club does. But I think Pete recognizes she's got great natural speed. She does still need to keep testing her endurance to make sure she's strong. But I think one of the reasons she took a little bit of a step back is because she missed like a key chunk of training right before USA's last year. But now that I'm a pseudo race director, did you guys see that entries for this thing cost, I think, $107? Was it $100? Where did I get $107? Anyway. It's $107. And, John, I was going to bring this up myself. I mean, I know you lean left and you like to see Mr. Biden win the election. And there was... People are pushing back against this Washington Post story about the $15 Happy Meal that went uh, McDonald's meal that went viral on TikTok. What the White House said it was misinformation because it was an it was a special meal in one of the Dakotas. But there's a McDonald's right down the street from Weldon that also serves $15 Happy Meals. Or, okay, is there a running the, question here at some point? I'm just saying inflation is very high. But when I saw this, everyone on Electron was outraged, and I just kind of. I don't know. I was like, okay, this is where we are in society, man. They're, they're, they're gorging us to go to a pro sporting event. If you want good seats, take the family of four. Might cost you a thousand dollars. I mean, I'm looking uh, at the BU athletic department and they don't have a football team. They don't have some major conference TV deal that they're seeing. Hey, we can basically fund our track team off of these home meets. And they now know that's where all the top teams go. All of the best runners and the top collegiate programs want a spot in that starting line in these races. And guess what? The coaches aren't paying these entry fees. So the coaches will just say to their athletic department, the power five schools, Hey, we need the money to go to the, go to this meet. Oh, the entry fees went up 25 bucks this year or whatever it was. The, the coaches, you know, maybe it's more complicated than that to me, but they're not the ones paying it. They're putting their athletes in the start lane 
and BU is charging its supply and demand here. So I, I'm not, I mean, $100 for 5K does seem excessive, but at the same time, that's uh, economics 101. I mean, it is the top indoor track in the world. This track isn't cheap. You probably want to put a new one. Might be like a million dollars. I don't know. Oh, they just got it resurfaced this year, Weldon, as well. So maybe they're trying to pay off some of that. Right. So I don't know. The track's not going to last 20 years. I mean, but I mean, they're talking about netting 50 50 grand just on these 5Ks. And they have races every week there. Like, so maybe, hey, Yale, Yale's up the street from me. Not up the street, 45 minutes away. Yeah, let's let's build it, buddy. Put on the put on the build a super track like BU. We'll charge two hundred bucks an entry. My turkey trot, the kids under ten were free. How many free races do you guys know of? I don't know, but the alternative to building like you're so much the track being you know a million dollars or something like the, the whole facility ten million, twenty million. So I'm like fine, like okay. But you do see this problem all the time in college athletics. It's like, it's not anyone's money. It's not their money. You know, but I kind of like it too. It's like, do we really need to send the eighth kid on the team so he can have a fake PB? You know? Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not throw around the word fake PB. You know, as someone who ran his 5K PB on that track, it's a full 200-meter track, properly measured, meets all world athletics requirements. So it's, it's a real PB, people. Why don't we build a track, the Let's Run track? We make it a little bit short, and we don't tell anybody. And then everybody sets PBs. Do they really measure them? Remember, we were going to pay in the early days of Let's Run. I, I still should do it. We were, people thought the Stanford track was short because people weren't used to time trials with like no wind and perfect temperatures. Like, How do they run 20 seconds faster than they would anywhere else? And that, we were going to pay someone just to wheel it off. But by the way, if you've heard this story, Please email me. I don't know where it was. I heard a story once about a college coach, some old guy, a legend. They built a track, a new track, and they dedicated it to him. And he like was pretty old and was there for the, for the unveiling, and he walked around it. And when he got to the finish line, he's like, there's one small problem. It's not 400 meters. And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, I just walked it. I know how I, I'm used. To, I know how many steps it is around a 400 meter track. You're, you, they measured it wrong. And he was right. They had to redo it for like a couple hundred grand. If you know who that was, please email me, Robert at Let's Run.com. That's legendary walking the track, and you can just tell that it's not 400 meters. I mean, that's when you know you're a real track person, is you can just tell how long a track is by walking around it. I may have heard this story from my boss at Cornell, who was known to exaggerate, particularly in recruiting. But most of his stories were based in truth. All right. Let's talk some governance. We were just talking about Sinclair Johnson, Nike athlete. Another ex-Nike athlete that's in the news today. Last night it came out from the Oregonian newspaper out in Portland that the Mary Kane lawsuit... $20 $20 million lawsuit that she filed against Nike and Alberto Salazar is no longer. It's been settled. Terms of the settlement have not been disclosed. In case you're not familiar with the case, Kate Kane, hell, so many people, might, if you're young, might not know who Mary Kane is. Kane was like a 15 year old, 13 year old phenom, 14 year old phenom. She made the world championship final in what? In the 1500 and what? 10th or 11th grade, John? It was the summer after a junior year of high school, 2013. Won the World Junior 3000, 
joined Alberto Salazar's group. He was coaching her remotely in high school. She flies out there the moment she graduates high school, never runs faster, and then filed a lawsuit only months after trying to get back into the group, but saying, hey, I was emotionally abused, and now it's been settled. The Oregonian reports that you know, Kane had lost a few, a few early judgments in the settlement, but basically Nike was trying to get the case dismissed on summary judgment, which is summary judgment happens. People fall for it all the time in court cases. Like when you're not disputing facts, it's like, okay, these facts are known, but this lawsuit is not legitimate anyways. And they were saying that Kane's own words, show that there was an emotional abuse. But I think their strongest argument was that the statute of limitations had expired. They said that she had two years to file it. She didn't file it within two years. So who knows what would have happened? We'll, we'll never know the settlement either. But what do you guys think of this? Do you think she got paid? She was looking for $20 million. I don't think the settlement was close to that, but we'll never know for sure. My thoughts on this whole thing in general are... Basically the same as when it came out a couple of years ago, she was filing this lawsuit is that I hope she can put this whole episode behind her and find peace. Uh, obviously it was a very stressful period of her life. She feels she suffered emotional abuse. Some of the behaviors that were alleged against Salazar were um, frankly, not good. You know, uh, it seemed like he and Darren treasure were pretty indifferent to what she was going through at the time and forgetting this is still a teenager and it's someone who you can't just sort of let them figure it out on your own. You're supposed to be there supporting her. And clearly Mary feels that she didn't get that support. So yeah, my hope is that she can just find peace. It's a difficult period of her life, but hopefully she can move beyond it now uh, that this lawsuit's been settled. I pretty much agree with you, John. One just from a personal standpoint, it's a sad story to see such promise not fulfilled. I personally don't think, even if Mary Kane had been in the right situation, she would have been a star. I think her body was going to change, but we don't know that. We've seen some women now plateau for a while. I mean, Caitlin Tui, Caitlin Tui's freshman year at, at, at NC State wasn't the best, but thankfully Lori Hennis wasn't telling her to lose weight because that backfires. But you know, she she suffered. I just think this could have been prevented. Like when she was going to join the team, I literally thought to myself, should I call up her parents? Do they know the rumors about Alberto Salazar? So I think a lot of people failed her. I mean, Mary Kane was ambitious, but the parents let her join a pro group, maybe when she wasn't ready for it. Remember, Kane didn't even want to be on the high school team. She was having trouble with the high school team. And then the agent, I don't know, did the agent, did he have the same talk? I mean, if I knew the rumors about Salazar, he probably had too, but it's probably hard to talk parents out of it. They were very Catholic. They thought there was some sort of, this is like a sign from God that Salazar was going to reach out to her. So it's just sad, but she did probably make a lot of money from Nike. So I don't think she needed 20 million for this. I, I talked to one lawyer and texted another lawyer about this today. Once I said, well, what do you think was going to happen? He's like, well, I'd be shocked if she got a million dollars for this. But another lawyer said that it, you know, Claiming emotional abuse is a really high standard. It has to be really egregious. Now, 
teenage girl living from home who's suicidal being ignored. That's maybe that fits the bill. But the other thing is the statute of limitations. If it's past the statute of limitations, that's really hard to get to get around. So that case could have been thrown out. So maybe, you know, maybe she got a small sum of money. It's safer for Nike to pay her a little bit. You know, who knows? But I will say, you know, I, I, I've learned from this. I mean, I called up a very prominent runner recently with this whole Eddie Wiley situation. And I said, will you try to get reach her? And this person's gone through some similar stuff. And she's like, I don't really feel like it involves me. What, why would we get involved? I was like, because we don't want another Mary Kane type situation. We don't want to fail another promising young woman, big talent. So hopefully we all can learn from this moving forward. The Mary Kane situation is unfortunate, but at the same time, Robert, I remember thinking like, wow, does she know what she's getting into? But those other people, like the agent, they have the relationship with Mary Kane. It's not our role to say that. Same with Addie Wiley. It's not your role to sticks. You're too far removed from them to get involved, I think. Unless, like, you saw, like, something imminent abuse about to occur. Like, that's just a different situation. Like, oh, something bad could happen. Like, people are like, get out of my business, bro. But would it be a much better story if Mary Kane had gone on to be a superstar runner? Yes. Am I convinced that would have happened regardless of what happened? No. Does, did she get paid, you ask? I think money is going from Nike to Mary Kane. I mean, that doesn't mean that she would have won this lawsuit at all, but it's it's bad PR for them. Throw a few hundred thousand dollars, I don't know, make it go away. Lawyers are very expensive. Even if Nike has, you have to hire outside counsel. Having been involved in a lawsuit, I still would say we were 100% in the right. We can... I guess I think now five years is up. I'm allowed to talk about this. It's been probably 15 or 10 or something. We got tossed out in summary judgment and they were going to be on the hook for the other side's attorney's fees. And they had like one of the top law firms in America. Like you never know what's going to happen in a lawsuit. And at that point we settled it because I think they knew we were in the right on appeal, but it's like, that's expensive. So, but if I had to bet, I think probably some money goes Mary Kane's way. Why else would she just drop the suit? She would just keep going until it, until she lost or something. Like at some point, I mean, it, there'd be expenses there. Yeah, one point of clarification earlier, Robert said that she filed the lawsuit this just a few months after she had tried to rejoin the Oregon Project. That was uh, not totally the correct timeline. She tried to rejoin the team in the spring of 2019. That fall was when she first made the allegations against Salazar in the New York Times. And then she filed the lawsuit in October 2021, just to straighten that out. Okay, yeah. I forget. So she went to the New York Times a few months after trying to rejoin the team. But correct, the correct. A year too later. Okay. Stand corrected. Okay, shall we move on to USATF? The tax return. It's the week of the annual meeting, which means that's the week that USATF always post its tax return for some reason this always comes out way delayed this is the 2022 tax return i think they do file an extension typically but well well do you know the reasoning behind this no john but you're stealing my line i said oh <laughs> when when does the tax return happen to come out oh just they wait to the last second possible before the annual meeting and then release it real quickly so people can't really analyze it too much i mean it doesn't take that long to analyze it but 
it's par for the course for them. They're not the most transparent organization. They forget they're a nonprofit. They're supposed to serve their members. I think Max Siegel's contract should be public. Why is he getting these bonuses? Who are you serving? But we'll get there, John. Carry on with the USATF news of the week. Yeah, so naturally, after he made $3.8 million last year, CEO Max Siegel, my first thing is opening this thing. What, what was his total salary for 2022? And it was $1.3 million, which I would argue is still excessive, uh, especially the it's his fifth straight year making at least $1.2 million. The CEO of the USOPC, Sarah Hirschland, which is, you know, the organization above USATF and covers all Olympic sports. The revenue is more than 10 times greater, $357 million in 2022. Well, roughly 10 times greater, I should say. Uh, that CEO of the USOPC made $1.175 million, so less than Max Siegel did this year. And then if you compare to other organizations, American Red Cross, Robert had this in his video that he's been hyping up for the last couple of weeks, they have a 3.2 billion revenue. Their CEO made 832,000 in 2022. So I would argue it's still excessive, but it is significantly less than the 3.8 million he made in 2021. But then the other big line from here was it was so big. In fact, they had a statement on the cover letter of the tax return to explain it. Is USATF posted an annual loss of 6.72 million dollars for 2022. Uh, they had record revenue, $37.94 million, but also record expenses, $44.66 million. And the reasoning they said behind that was it reflects USATF's payments in support of 2022 World Athletics Championships. They were fulfilling a financial obligation made by the board of directors in September 2014. The payment was made in 2022. And Rich Perelman, who has the excellent sports examiner, newsletter he said that payment was 9.9 million dollars i'm not sure exactly where that he got the number but that's how much he's saying the the number was so robert you're the you have strong opinions on this topic typically what was your reaction to the the tax return that came out i don't have a problem with usatf spending six million nine million dollars to host a world championships that's what they should be doing it's just a shame that Max Siegel makes so much more money because if he didn't make an average of, what, over $2 million for the last five or six years, we would have another five or $6 million. If he was just paid it at, at a normal rate, we could be spending this type of money to promote. We could have another Diamond League in the U.S. We could rotate it around the country. We could, we could do so much more. When the head of the Atlantic Track Club who puts on a lot of great events, has a lot of diverse past stars like Gail Devers helping out. Rich Kanaw makes 200K a year. I'm sure he'd be happy to be the head of USATF for 500K a year. And we'd have a lot more money for everything else. Yeah, Robert, in terms of spending money to host the World Championships, uh, I'm not opposed to that either. Like this is a nonprofit. It doesn't need to be raking in huge profits every year. And again, that's an event that benefits the sport in the United States is having the world athletics championships in Eugene. So yeah, I'm not really worried about that. And they had a relatively large savings. You know, they had a 
$13.4 million in savings and other investments at that time that was down to $1.8 million after you know, that payment to the LOC for Oregon 2022. And the other thing is the net assets of USATF, it was $8.5 million at the end of 2021, and now it was only down to a little under 600000 at the end of 2022, again, because of that big payment. So I would, I, what I'd like to know and what I reached out to USATF was just like, you know, was this amount the amount you budgeted for? Are you concerned at all about, you know, not having a massive amount of net assets right now? But again, that, that's an expense I can get behind paying an expense to host the worlds in the USA. I'm just kind of like, what I'd like to know is, is this part of the plan or did this cost more than you thought? Did you not bring in the revenue you thought? That sort of thing. Great. And I bet they'll never tell us. But I, I think you, what you should do is try to go to the Oregon organizers. That's a state, probably the state of Oregon is probably putting that on, right? So they're probably more likely to be required to to answer those questions, tell you stuff. So that would be one thing. One other thing here, and we want to get to the Grant Blake's interview because it's, it's a long one and we've already been going for a long time, is I'm sure USATF at some point will brag how it was record revenue. Well, revenue had been down in 2021 since, you know, 2016 was the high mark. 35 million. Now it's it, 2021. It was below that. So we're paying a guy multiple millions of dollars to bring in less revenue. This year, it's technically up to 37.9. That's only in absolute terms. If you factor in the 18% inflation, 17.99% between 2016 and 2022, revenue is still down almost 10%. So I don't know. We, we don't need to pay someone more than a million dollars a year to just, just maintain the status quo. I mean, particularly on a world championship year, shouldn't he be signing like major sponsors that want to be a part of everything and be part of USATF and be part of the buzz? And that should bring in lots of revenue. It didn't bring in crap. I would assume that the 2028 Olympics would bring in something. He's a complete moron if it doesn't, but that'll be, you know, oh, well, wow. wait a second. Wait a second. You can't say it didn't bring in crap. They did have a record amount of revenue. Like it might not be when you compare inflation wise to 2016, which was an Olympic year. Uh, though the Olympics went in the U.S. It, on an inflation-adjusted times, it wasn't as much, but they did bring in more sponsorships than the previous year. Rich Perelman breaks it down nicely on his website. They had $20.2 million in sponsorships in 2021. It was 23 in 2022. Um, yeah, I, I, they got a bump. They brought in more revenue than before, so I don't think it's like, oh, just we need to totally bash them for that, but at the same time, like, USATF in their press releases are constantly referring to Max Siegel as sort of groundbreaking and a visionary and all that sort of stuff. And I just haven't seen it. I've seen someone who is able to put the organization generally on firm financial footing while he's been in charge, but I don't see the visionary talk. It's not visionary. He sold his, he sold USATF, sold to Nike, but Phil Knight's going to support track anyways. If he's visionary, get Phil Knight's endowment, get a, a trust fund. From Phil for the rest of his life. Do it now. A $1 billion endowment for, for USA Track and Field. Or is it crazy to think that we could get a million track fans to, to sign up for USATF membership every year? Just support Team USA at $50 a pop. And you get free access to all the meets. And, and You're uh, trying to find a million track fans paying $50 to USATF per year? I, I think that might be a pipe dream. This isn't the most popular sport out there, Robert, in case you haven't noticed. Or 10 bucks or something? The big picture, Max Siegel still overpaid. I think this is a crazy comparison, but the board matters. Look what happened at OpenAI. You had a board down to six people. 
They did some crazy stuff. This board, Max Siegel came from this board. He originally was on the board. When, so you can talk about independent directors and whatnot, but Max came from this board, so they're all buddy-buddy with him, or that's the genesis of this thing originally when you go back far enough. But the board should announce what its contract is, why is he getting these bonuses, that sort of stuff. Yes, John, revenue was up this year. Sponsorships were up about $3 million. Grants, which people giving you money, was up about $2 million. Media revenue up about $1 million. There was about $2 million less in ticket sales because there's no Olympic trials. But the absolute revenue, well, it depends on if you look at the tax returns or whatever, but it's like pretty much barely above 2016 from the USATF financial form, not their tax form. The sponsorship revenue was up at like less than 200K from 2016. So in seven years, we had a home worlds. The sponsorship revenue is essentially flat. This guy's still getting bonuses. And my big concern going forward still is this Nike deal does not look to be indexed for inflation. You see the commission that we paid to the group that negotiated the Nike deal. That's a flat about 937,000 or something like that. So is USATF going to be getting the same amount of money from Nike in 2040 that they're getting right now? That could put them in a precarious financial situation. I just don't see why a guy doing this should get paid the equivalent of USA Tennis, which has $300 million in revenue. That, the head of that gets the same salary as Max Siegel or same total compensation for the year, which is crazy. Yeah, the Nike deal could look very bad in 2040, which was my point all along. And we need to see this contract. We never will. But there's some belief, well, and then he was getting a $500,000 bonus every year because when he signed an initial deal, it's like, USATF's revenues are like twenty million now. If you raise it to thirty-five, you're going to get a percentage of that. But then, then I fine. really hope. Sport- then fine, you're a nonprofit. Release that information. Explain to your members. Explain to everyone out there. All of these people. It's a nonprofit. You're supposed to be serving a public good. There's no reason why you can't have transparency and explain that. And people would say, "Okay, Max, that's fair. Or that's not fair." Instead, you you keep it in secrecy, and then. You know, express, oh my gosh, my kids are being attacked online because people are discussing my salary. Please, you're a public figure. Get over yourself. Correct. But what I'm really hoping for is moving forward, which would be starting in, I assume, 2024, that this $500,000 bonus is gone. So instead of making $1.3 million, he makes $800,000 a year. Well, that's the thing, Robert. They hired this outside firm, F.W. Cook, to investigate Siegel's pay, how does it compare to other chief executives? They signed a new contract for 2024 through 2028, five-year deal. They didn't. They said they took the findings of this investigation into account when drawing up that new contract. They didn't say what those findings were. They didn't say how it was reflected in the new contract. We're probably not going to learn any details until the end of 2025 when we have Siegel's 2024 salary from the tax filing. But that's what I want to know. Again, you're lauding in this press release, you mentioned we hired this firm to assuage some of the concerns. Like clearly that's an acknowledgement that there are a lot of people who have strong feelings about Siegel's salary. They hired this firm to look into executive compensation, yet they're not saying at all what that firm found. So if you're going to take that step, 
go all the way, make those findings transparent. I think a lot of USATF members would appreciate it. But Robert touched on something. The most important thing that can be done for track and field in this country right now is someone ensuring that Phil Knight leaves an endowment for the sport of track and field. Do you guys know how much money Phil Knight's worth? I would guess probably 30 or 40 billion. Very good, John. According to Google, I just, you know, Phil Knight net worth $42 billion. If Phil Knight squirrels away just $1 billion and you do very poorly with it 5% per year, that's $50 million. That's more than the USATF budget. What if Phil Knight wanted to give, put aside $10 billion? I mean, like, the sport could be radically changed. I hope to God. I mean, Phil Knight, people are so critical of Nike, but like, there's one person funding the stadium, funding stuff for track and field in America. It's essentially Phil Knight and Nike. And I, I, I hope that there is some financial legacy that he leaves to the sport. I know he has other causes he gives to, like Oregon, and maybe he wants to like help poor children, or I don't know what causes he's into. But I would love to see him leave a few billion dollars somehow to the sport of track and field, and don't let somehow like don't don't let USATF touch it. Have a foundation with a proper board that determines where that money goes, and it's essentially I wanted to go to only elite athletes somehow, like I don't know, or putting on great events or something. But somebody figured that out. Phil Knight is now 85 years old. This needs to be done. Well, I would argue he's already left quite a legacy on the sport. He, Haywood Field was largely constructed from Phil Knight's millions. And Nike has been the number one sponsor of pro track athletes. They hand out more dollars and sponsorship dollars and have done for the last you know 20 years. More than that, like Phil Knight has already propped up the sport a lot. And I, I'm not saying like, yeah, I mean, I guess part of me is like, yes, it would be good. You'd be securing the financial future of the sport. But at the same time, it's like, does, does that help the sport learn from itself? Like, oh, we're just going to rely on one rich benefactor and that's the way the sport su- survives. It probably is the most effective way for track and field to survive as a professional sport. But <laughs> You know, other professional sports, a lot of them, well, I guess you got soccer comes in with all the nation states, but other professional sports like try to make money in that sort of thing. Whereas we're just like, oh, please, Uncle Phil, can you fill up our coffers? Yeah. John, other professional sports are professional. They don't rely on a charitable gift to survive. But that's how this shows how mighty yes. track and field is in the US. Tons of people are riding on charity. We're spending six hundred. No, I think it's one point two billion dollars in stadiums here in Maryland. The white man's welfare for all these stadium subsidies in the U.S. All these nation states buying these U.K. soccer teams just to to whitewash their atrocities. There's plenty of plenty of just government money going for rich people. That's a fair point for these things. And, and the whole field night. Oh, we built Hayward Field. We had Hayward Field. We we didn't need a new one. If Nike wasn't sponsoring the athletes, somebody else would be sponsoring them. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, you would have less dollars in the sport. People would pick up those contracts. Other brands would pick them up. But you'd have the people, the lower tier athletes, some of the other brands might get priced out of the sport because now the money that they're getting paid is going to people who used to be with Nike. I don't think you, I don't want to just say like, oh, 
not you take Nike out, everyone they'd all find a home at other companies. You're taking out a massive amount of the sponsorship dollars if you remove Nike from the sport. Remember, remember everybody, the Cyber Monday deals are still available at Nike. I bought myself a pair of Nikes yesterday. Do you guys want to know what shoe I bought? Or is, I mean, no one paid me to do this. I just, like everybody else, went there and bought them. You get a great deal on the Nike Pegasus, more than half off. I went for the Pegasus Turbo, uh, almost half off with the code. Link in the show notes, link in the show notes if you want to save. Any final thoughts here? We've got Graham Blanks coming up. It's a great interview. We've already gone on for a while. I don't want to drag this out too much further. Rojo, final words, any last sound effects you want to use? Not sure why Weldon bought the Nike Pegasus Turbo. On our shoe review site, betterrunningshoes.com. Go to betterrunningshoes.com. Only receives an, well, at least the Pegasus, Pegasus 35 Turbo, only receives an 8.6 score. If you want to know the best shoes to go, go to betterrunningshoes.com today. I checked out that site. People like it better than the Pegasus 40 in general. Most people like their running shoes. And it's got the super foam. I wanted a super foam shoe. So that was my thinking. I've been really eyeing a Saucony shoe though. I almost bought that one regularly, but it wasn't the Black Cyber Monday deal. There are a lot of great running shoes out there. I don't like to play favorites. A lot of great running brands. I, Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. All right. Coming up next, we got in people, the NCAA cross-country champion, first one ever from Harvard University and the Ivy League. It's Graham Blanks. He'll be up right next. Graham Blanks, he was six here last year. He was the Nutty Comb champion. He's taking a look back. He's oh! waving to the crowd, putting the number one up. Woo-hoo! Graham Blanks, there it is, the very first Ivy champ, getting the laurels here at the 23 Cross Country Championship in Virginia. Graham Blanks, the low stick and the national champ. Our guest today, a 21-year-old, Harvard University junior from Athens, Georgia. He is the Ivy League record holder in the mile 3,000 and 5,000 meters. This fall, he won all five of his cross-country races, including the Nutty Comb Invitational, HEPs, and on Saturday, the NCAA Championships in Charlottesville, Virginia, to become the first Ivy League man to win the NCAA individual title. He is Graham Blanks. Graham Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. Thank you. I feel welcome. Glad, glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. So I want to start with uh, a video I saw on your Twitter account from June. And it was of you cheering on your teammate, Maya Ramston, when she won the NCAA 1500 meter title. And your caption was, chasing this feeling the rest of my life. And... You now are an NCAA champion too. Did you get that feeling on Saturday, and what was it like? No, honestly, honestly, watching Maya uh, win that 1500 was probably a little more exciting. I mean, the secondhand nerves and like excitement, I think, almost are are greater than the firsthand, which is maybe a big irony in life. Um, I'm glad you found that video because I I wish. Uh, I was hoping when I posted that someone would pick it up a couple months ago because I thought that was actually pretty cool. But uh, yeah, that was like the day after I finished my season. So 
I'd had a couple drinks and, uh, you know, Gibby brought me into the, the coach's zone for some reason. Um, and yeah, watching her, her win that and then taking my shirt off and waving it around like a, like a soccer player. Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty cool experience, but, uh, I did see a video of, uh, of Maya cheering me on after I, I won the race. So maybe that's, that's the big, the big flip. Yeah, honestly, after seeing that, you took your show off to celebrate. I'm a little underwhelmed by your celebration in Charlottesville. You crossed the line. I think you threw up the number one, but uh, was that just because you were tired or, or you're just not sure what to do in the moment? Like, what is it like crossing that line as the champ? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to come across like arrogant or anything because I have a lot of respect uh, for my competition and I don't want to to give them any any uh, chips to put on their shoulder or or anything and and uh, it really is just kind of all, all respect, especially you know, I didn't have a, a big lead or anything. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, at that point, I was just trying to like kind of look like Kipchoge, like. But uh, I looked back and definitely not as good. Um, feel like I was just trying to get to the line at that point. I like the celebration. I mean, I was watching remotely, you know, on the TV screen, and that straight on shot is—it's hard to tell like how far ahead you were, so when you put your hand up, I'm like, okay, he's got it. And it was a perfect screenshot for, you know, the website front page. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was appropriate. Like there's gotta be some celebration. You don't want to go over the top Jimmy Weiner type. I mean, you know, act like you've been there before, even though you haven't been there. But what I want to know is how do you celebrate a, a national title? You know, growing up as a huge sports fan, I, I, I see the, the baseball guys and they have the Bud Light zone or Bud Lo- Budweiser zone and all that. And and you see, the, you know, the major sports, but cross country is a little bit different. It's not the most popular sport. You win, but the whole team doesn't win. So w- were there any celebrations? You've got a big 5,000 coming up in like a week. <laughs> How did you celebrate? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty lame uh, because the, the free market has shifted the uh, the fastest 5K of the indoor season to two weeks after uh, cross country for whatever reason. So can't really uh, go too hard. Um, if I can think about an athlete going too hard, I remember Tom, seeing videos of Tom Brady after he won a Super Bowl with the uh, the Buccaneers um, throwing the Super Bowl trophy across, across like the canal. Um, there was none of that. I mean, I went, we got home. Um, that night uh so honestly it was just a lot of travel right away um went to grendel's with some of my my non-minor teammates um and had a couple a couple of drinks i mean that's that's about the biggest biggest celebration we had um you know the, ne- the next day we have like a our semi-casual uh party which um some of our freshmen go a little too hard there because it they don't really understand how to to intake alcohol, but, um, not, not my, not me. Uh, cause I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to, I'm hanging on by a thread, you know, just got to make it uh, to that 5k and then, then we can relax. I read that you guys have a slushy machine that gets fired up for these parties. Was this a slushy worthy occasion and what was in the mix? If so, it was, yeah, I know it, it was, uh, we uh we finally figured it out. It's like roasting a pig almost. You kind of have to start like six hours early because you don't. It's like you go bet- between a line of having it just be completely liquid or rock solid, and you just have to kind of flip the freezer switch on and off until you get the consistency you want. And uh, 
it was still terrible. I mean, at the end, it was like half sugar water, half like shaved ice. So it got the job done, but it was just lemonade, uh, lemonade slush because that kind of mixes well with other stuff. Gotcha. And what about like on campus? Do they have any sort of celebration for you? I guess the timing is a little weird because everyone's going back on Thanksgiving break, but were you getting recognized or congratulated? Does Harvard do anything special? You're the first Ivy League man to win this title. Uh, I mean, not not really. I mean, I I um I will say I have I I or a couple. I mean, I I talked to someone once and like said like some something that gets me in the right mindset for races or like to take the pressure off myself is that I come back to campus and and no one cares and. Someone came up to me in a dining hall once and was like, "Hey, I heard, I heard you in, a, in an interview say that like I care. Like, uh, I don't think we don't care." Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I think I was kind of wrong with that because I, you know, I only was on back on campus for like a day and a half, um, and I had a bunch of people come up to me and say, "Say congrats," which is nice. Um, but yeah, like n- my, my professors don't know what's going on, or like oh, well, most of my uh, peers don't. So there weren't any big grand celebrations no no parades through the streets of cambridge for me um just a a dark a dark parking lot in front of our indoor track went in showered went home i like that mindset because i used to think think the same thing like when i was coaching the, the kids would put so much pressure on themselves and you know i mean heps was everything or whatever yeah. and then you know sometimes i was like okay we could even, even the super bowl something that is objectively like a big deal in america like during the Super Bowl, drive to the supermarket. There's like 50% of Americans that yes. aren't even watching the race. So, <laughs> but anyways. So looking ahead to that BU race, which is not this coming weekend, but the weekend after that first Saturday in December, what's your goal for that? And do you guys have any idea what the paces are going to be set for and who else is showing up? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know who's showing up. I just, I just assume everyone's going to be there again. Hopefully, um, I hope there's a good pace. I mean, I think we all, I think we all know what we would want, which is, you know, to go for the Olympic standard. I mean, I, I don't see any reason not to. Um, but it guess kind of depends on like what the pace assignments are and, and stuff like that. Because um, if it's like pace for just like ncaa qualifier like well i'm just gonna go with that like it's not that big of a deal and just in the end we're just here you know i'm an i'm an ncaa runner so i'm here to to qualify for uh for indoors but i would love to take a shot at at the the standard at least because i think there's a lot of guys that are probably better than me in the NCAA that can probably hit that so for their sake um i hope i hope it's paced to that but uh, you know i also believe i could get close you think there are a lot of guys in the NCAA who are better than you? You just beat everyone on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, I was the best man that day, so um, that doesn't mean I'm the best. I'm the best in the in the. I mean, like it's it rotates. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I think I can. I can win. I mean, that five k. But uh, I mean, I'm I'm just here. To, I'm I'm here to run fast next next week, and I'm not I'm not really here to to win. I'm gonna try to win, but I say like, why not? Let's work together. Like try to run that uh time but um you know it just depends on what what people want um and i do think there's people that can run fast 5ks um who knows what people's strengths are right now i I don't know so looking 
you know, looking ahead a little bit, but maybe also in the present, we're in a position in the sport now where you're able to sign endorsement contracts, uh, NIL deals. NCAA cross country champion is probably going to be in pretty high demand. The both of last year's champs, uh, Charles Hicks and Caitlin Tui, signed deals before the end of that academic year. What's your position right now? Do you have an agent? Do you have any NIL deals? And if so, with whom? Uh, yeah, I'm work. I'm working with an agent. I'm not sure if I can. I can. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll just like say who it, I'm gonna. I'll text him later and just see if it's confidential or not. But and then y'all could cut it out, right? But just assume for now that it's it's okay. It's like I'm working with Matt Soddenfield um, for like Flynn Agency. And yeah, we're uh, now it's just yeah, we're just kind of looking at looking over stuff. Definitely haven't signed anything yet. Um, so just I'm letting him I'm letting him do his job. I don't really I don't really think about it. You know, he he makes a commission off whatever uh, whatever I get. So for me to get the best deal, I just don't think about this stuff. Like I let him work everything out. Um, he keeps me a little updated every now and then. So. Um, when that happens, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll know. If that happens, not when. Oh, I think it's going to be when. I, I feel fairly confident you'll be able to get something. Uh, I guess my my question is: before the NCAA meet, the pre race press conference, you said you planned on running all four years at Harvard. Is that still the plan? Would you ever consider turning professional early or? You know, would getting an NIL deal make it more likely you're sticking around at Cambridge for all four years of your NCAA eligibility? I mean, yeah, I see no, I see no reason to 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 turn pro, like especially if you have an NIL deal uh, at Harvard. I mean, I guess you can make the case that you could like try to um, sell high or or whatever. But um, for me, I I'm just here to to run for this team, like, and I would hate to be training as a professional athlete while on campus, you know, uh, when I have all my teammates here and like all these amazing racing opportunities. So definitely not in the plans right now to, to do the pro thing. I mean, I want to use, use the rest of my running, um, next year. Um, cause I'm definitely not, you know, dropping out of Harvard, um, to run professionally. Um, and you know, there's, I feel like there's still unfinished business, um, with our cross country team amongst other things <clears throat> it's just it just it wouldn't, really, it wouldn't really make sense to me and then the nil deal it confound you know compounds that even more because now i'm also if that happens then i get a little money to stay to continue to stay in school and compete you talk about that unfinished business graham what is grant what do graham blanks jonathan galt robert johnson and weldon johnson all have in common besides going to the ivy league ivy league school We've never won an Ivy League team cross country championship. So Harvard's gotten very close the last couple of years. Yeah. I know that that's one you really like to win. But let's go back. Um, wait, wait. I, I have a question here about that, Robert. If I offered you right now, you would have to trade in your NCAA individual title, but you get the HEPS team cross country title. Do you take that trade? Probably still not. I mean, it's just like, why would I? You know? Well, what what do you think the pros are of that, of turning pro? 
Is that what you're asking? No, no, no. I'm saying you're the NCAA individual title. If I came here and said, okay, you can either have from this 2023 season, the team HEPs title for Harvard or the NCAA individual title yeah. for Graham Blanks, which one of those would you prefer? Yeah, so I think if I said Hebs title, um, Gibby would fucking kill me because he does not want uh, <laughs> want our whole program to revolve around that meet. Um, don't get me wrong, like we want it really bad, um, and that's something like we need to get for sure. Um, but no, I think I think an individual title is done more for this team than a team title would um, at at Hebs. I mean, I hope I hope you know my win can help with recruiting perhaps or, or, uh, or, and I think, I think it's like, I, like it it feels more like a team win. I mean, I mean with the individual, like, I mean, it's, it's so much bigger than me. So individual win for sure. And I I don't think that's uh, crazy to say, but don't, don't get me wrong. We want that heads title for sure. No, I mean, that's, that's the hardest race to win in college distance running is NCAA cross and you earned it. So obviously, like, I don't think anyone would begrudge you that. And I agree with you. More people are going to be aware of Harvard cross country now than if you guys had won HEPs for the first time in, in 51 years. Well, well, he said it got him in a lot of stuff. It got him on the let's run.com track talk podcast. Cause when I met Graham a couple years ago, Graham's great. aunt is like one of my parents, better friends, actually. I just was thinking, but we had Weldon on pre-show. I think she married Weldon, his first marriage. Now that marriage didn't work out. She so was well, the so officiant, gonna... you mean? She didn't yeah, actually yeah. get married. Yeah. So, um, but so when she's like, "Do you know Graham?" I was like, "Oh my god, he's amazing." Yes, I know him. And then I was like, "I oh, wish I'd have him on the podcast," but I didn't want to like show favorite, favorite, you know, family favoritism. So I, I said, "Oh, if you win NCAs, I will have you on." So here we are, a couple years later, but. John, do you want to go with the NCAA race first, or do you want to go back to the beginning, kind of, and, and go through his career? Because I mean, I don't, ha- I don't have that much else to ask about the NCAA race, but I would say if you got a few questions about that, roll with that, Robert. Well, I was just wondering, you know, I mean, I, I saw the post race comments where I, I love the comment. Both you and Parker Volby both said, like, you know, people are like, oh, you're so, are you, are you really confident? You're like, no, not really, and it's the same doubts that all runners have in your head, like you're trying to shut it off and like. Stick in it, stick in it, stick in it. But, you know, you said that you had the plan to go kind of for good if you were there with 1K to go. But when you're visualizing the race ahead of time, like, is there like one particular individual you think is going to be there? Or are you thinking, are you in your head, do you see like a whole group of guys? Or is it not that specific? Are you just thinking like, okay, I'm going to hang up there and then I'm going to go with 1K to go? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, I feel like I was envisioning what happened like a week before. Like I was envisioning going there. Um, it's hard to, you know, you obviously don't know who's going to be there, or how many people, but um, I think it definitely helped to like at least picture that beforehand. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, you're, you're right. I guess, I guess I agree with Parker um, with that. Cause um, you know, I have the same doubts as every single person in that, in that field. Um, but I feel like it's, you can, you can use those doubts, um, actually, cause I run with like a lot of fear. I mean, I run with like a, like a, like a deer or something that just saw a car. Like, I mean, like just trying to like, cause I, I, you know, I think I'm going to get past any second. So, well, well what are you going to do about it? Oh God, I'm just going to run as hard as I can. So. 
But but when when he started to break free of um, Samuel, like was it like was it just thrilling? Like oh my god, I'm doing it, or are you still nervous? He's going to come back. Like yeah, yeah. What's that I mean, it's like? Exciting. I mean, that, everyone has this. It's exciting because I know I have a I know I have a gap, but then it, also the other side of my head, I'm like, oh okay, here's a here's a perfect opportunity for you to get a walk walk down by an elite runner and just have him like kick you down the last last hundred meter a hundred meters and have it uh live on the internet forever mile split kick of the week so it's still it's it's never i'm never at peace until i'm across i'm across the line um i mean definitely i could uh when i made the move and i couldn't i couldn't hear his breathing or like his footsteps anymore it's like oh sh- okay well this this kind of works so far but i need to like keep going because the worst the worst case scenario is if i make that move and I continue to hear his breathing. Uh, that'd be pretty hard to to come back from. Uh, and then after the race, you sort of famously said you ran like a dumbass, and that was my favorite part of the interview because you're authentic and real. I, actually, the first time I ever interviewed you, people check it out on YouTube. You and your two Harvard teammates, your freshman year, all got all American. You had three All Americans. I didn't say across country, and you were the last one to join the interview. And you ran up to us and you said, "I promise, Coach." If, three, if we had three All-Americans, I'd get a, a tattoo of him on my ass. So it, I did I did bring a filter. I, I meant to bring the... Yeah, button, yeah. Since this is a podcast, we can do it. But, um, you know, I, I love that comments. Some people, like, filtered it out. I'm like, why? It's not like it's a bad word. But I, I talked to Coach Gibby, um, Alex Gibby, the, the Harvard distance coach who I've known for a long time, great guy, yesterday. And... I was like, "Hey, do you think he ran like a dumbass? Like, what do you think he said?" No. Did he say no? Yeah, he said not at all. Yeah, not at all. He 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 said, and he his his view on it was kind of what I thought. He's like, you know, he was responding to some half moves, but you know, he was just and he didn't want to get because the year before, basically, a couple of guys got you know a flyer and got way ahead, and, and you guys couldn't catch him. But you know, he he basically just um you know, you were responding to the moves. You weren't making moves and you waste a lot more energy when you make the moves. And, you know, his whole game plan, which is just sort of stay in the pack right unnoticed until it's time to to, to make the bid for Gory. And he thought you did a very good job of that. So he, he was quite happy with the way you raced that thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was just kind of comparative because like I look back at the, the race video and I think like Habton ran a really smart race and like, Kai ran a really smart race. And then like, I mean, even like Dennis and Brian from OSU, like I thought they ran really smart. I mean, I thought their, their big move, that was pretty, um, I mean, that was a huge move. That was really hard to, to cover. Like, especially like probably the hardest part of the, uh, the hardest part of the course. Um, I was one of the hardest parts of the course is like where you get lulled to sleep. Cause you've been there like three times you hit the hill again and then they just take off. So I don't know why I I said that. It's probably just like a knee jerk reaction to like how how hard it was and like how many haymakers were being thrown. Because um, I I mean, you know, in an ideal race, I I'm the only one that makes a move and it works. But this time, everyone made different plays for the win. And and uh, yeah, I mean, I could have probably there's probably routes where I could have run a little a little easier on that day, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll take I'll take Gibby's uh, I'll take Gibby's word for it. 
Yeah, he said he wanted to make sure you were hidden in the pack till it was time to make yourself known. And, you know, we, if anything, I, I think most people ran pretty smart. I don't understand why Robinson was like up in the front between seven and eight K. He's got just such a good kick. I would just wait. But, well, can you explain that, Robert? If you listen to our post race interview, he was kind of bluffing and hoping that if he moved up, people wouldn't push the pace anymore because he was already hurting at that point. And then, oh, even gen- kind of, that's genius then. Yeah. They kind of figured it out, him out though. And, Passed him, and then he, yeah, he held on for third. But yeah, so I remember talking to Coach Gibby. I don't know when it was a year or so ago, and he said that, you know, I said, "What makes?" Oh, oh, I, I know when it was because when you were in Austin for NCAs, um, went to your great aunt's house. You guys had me over for dinner, and, and the, you know. So, some of your relatives were like, well, what makes Graham good? I'm like, well, obviously he's, obviously he's extremely talented. I mean, everyone has to be talented and you know, he's tough. That's what I thought. I was like, he just, he just seems so tough to me. Like he's just, you know, your freshman year, you're in the medical 10 after getting all American. Like you just really seem to be into running. Like not a lot of freshmen would take a gap year, go to altitude before you even started college. It's like, you want to be good. That, that part is clear. But I asked coach Gibby, I, the next day I said, well, what do you think makes him good? And one of the things he said was like, well, I, I think he's coach, very coachable, you know, I mean, obviously talent and, and toughness, but not all Ivy league runners like to be coached. Um, so he, he said that you're like very self-aware and like a good critic of yourself. So like, if there's something that he wants to work on with you, a lot of times when he starts the conversation, you've already come to that conclusion yourself. So it's like, he doesn't have to lead you the whole way. You're you're sort of already on board before he even even says that. Like, have you do you, you got do you agree with that assessment? Pretty much. Yeah, admittedly, I do think I'm pretty I'm pretty good. Like in the coachability realm, just just because I really like don't know much at all about um, about that type, like writing training or like the science behind it. Um, and I didn't realize people did until um i came like to this team like and like you have people who like trained themselves in high school um you have people like who know all all kinds of stuff like who are just really knowledgeable on on the topic but like for me like i don't really know anything all i know is like gibby lets me lets me train like at 100 percent all the time and, and i love that like and i think that's what that's what works for me so um you know if he tells me to jump i ask how high you know uh, but, uh, I think that's something I've been good at, like in high school and, and college. And it's, it's something that's not, it's something that's pretty e- easy to do. I mean, you just listen to them. So, um, have that irrational faith or I think, I think it's rational. So, yeah, well, I think it's great to have that trust in the coach because I mean, my, I always said when when we got out of college and my brother was being coached by this guy, John Kellogg, I said, if John Kellogg told Weldon to lie down and sleep in the middle of the street, he would do it, not even asking. He just somehow the cars wouldn't run him over. John told him to do it and it would work out. But he said you did have one superpower. Do you have any idea what Coach Gibby thinks your real yeah, superpower is? My superpower? Is? I don't know. He must have been talking big yesterday. I've never heard him talk this much about me. Is it? Is it well, true? You know, I had, what, shutting up? Yeah. No. Okay. Damn, that would have been good. I said that this weekend his real superpower is the, the, when the moments get bigger and bigger, instead of shrinking from it and getting nervous or overthinking it, he just rises to it. Like, it's just so fun to watch. There's no fear. 
He said that he gets a hint of yeah, hints of anticipation. He gets up for it and goes after it, not scared of it. This is really a special gift, and I, I just love that. Like to to think that you're like enjoying it and, and going for it, and because there's like so many runners that would dream to be in this in the situation that you're in, but we've seen so many athletes in, in so many different sports recently, like they're like miserable. I think they're the top of the world and they, they, the pressure they're instead of enjoying it and like going for it, it's like they're, they're running away from it. So I, I, it just, I don't know. I just seem like that's like a fun. Well, I'm like, wow, not only is Graham, he's having fun doing it. It sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, this is pretty easy for me to do right now when I don't have a whole lot of expectations on me. I mean, things are probably going to change in terms of like, expectations for my performance um externally and internally but like that is something i try to try to enjoy you know at the end of the day it's just it's just running i mean it's it's just a foot race um and it just happens like we've been able to like create this whole like this whole league this whole association that puts on these big these big meets and like people actually pay to come out and watch people like watch it on tv and stuff um, and so I think it's just like, that's something I get excited about is I can take part of it. Um, and I'm just like, I'm just grateful for those opportunities because, um, it is a really cool, cool thing to get to t- uh, take part of. All right. Let's go back to, to high school a little bit. In, in the beginning, I used to always ask recruits, like, how'd you get into running? How'd you get started? It's not the most popular sports. I mean, I was up on, on Dysat or mile split or somewhere. I mean, it looks like they have results from you in middle school. So when did you get started? Like what, what drew you to the sport? I mean, like just to like Turkey trots and stuff. Um, I like to, I like to joke that like I was trying to like prove myself. Cause I was like a little, just a little dude. I didn't play football. Like a lot of my friends, like in middle school and stuff, just cause I was too small. So, uh, the 5k was kind of a nice, a nice place where I could establish my, my, uh, manhood in a way. But, uh, no one really cares about the 5k or, or turkey trots, but at least I, I had illusions of grandeur that, that it did um, have importance. So started with that and I just kind of knew I was, I was all right at it. Um, you know, and I did cross country in middle school and stuff. Don't think I ever won a race. I mean, I might, I might've won like one race or something. Um, just didn't really take it that, that serious. I mean, I liked, I was a big soccer guy, so that's all I wanted to do was soccer. Uh, so I did like, I did the club team stuff. I would actually in middle in in middle school and like my freshman year of high school, I would do cross country practice, and then drive straight to soccer practice afterwards. So my mileage was probably sky high. I just I just didn't realize it. Um, but yeah, eventually my my high school coach um, finally got me to to settle down, be a little more focused, and he convinced me to go to a, an indoor track race. And it went terribly. I mean, I like DQ'd in the mile um, because I false started. I mean, right away they they DQ'd me for a false start in the mile, um, and then did a four by eight there also, and ran three laps instead of four. So DQ'd our team because of me. Um, and then I had an all right thirty two hundred, but I still loved it. I loved it. I thought it was really fun. So I was like. All right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stick to this. I'm gonna drop the soccer thing, which which was tough to do, but um glad glad I did it. Yeah. 
I mean, you obviously were, were doing pretty well. I think you were like eighth in the state meet as a freshman and then fourth as a sophomore. But your times weren't amazing. It looks like it was 4.30, 9.30 as a sophomore. And then junior year, you sort of had a, a big breakout. Coach Gibby couldn't remember if you ran 4.11 and 9.13 or 4.13 and 9.11. No, no. 4.15 4. in the mile, 9.13 in the 30. Okay. I do remember that. Nine, and 9.11 in the two mile, actually. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, nine eleven in the two mile, and um, so you know th- th- those are you know pretty good times. Sort certainly you know I mean the Ivy League schools are kind of looking for guys who are going to go sub nine eventually. And he says that you came up, I guess, in the spring, maybe during spring break, we're looking around at schools, and <clears throat> came into the office. And I guess, do you think? What do you think that was? The biggest reason why he was like, this guy's somebody we got to have on the team. Well, God's prepubescent. Exactly. That. He says, he's like, look, this guy looked like he was 12. He's like, if you can run 413 and 913, 911, whatever it is, as a 12-year-old, that's pretty good. He's like, I knew this guy had a ceiling, you know, and I just didn't know how high it was, but I knew it was higher than what, you know, what it was. You know, he's certainly much more talented than this because he hasn't matured, you know, gone through really big male puberty and hey i'm sure if my brother was on he'd be thrilled because we when we were 16 we looked like we were 12 too galen rupp looked like he was 12 i've always had this theory that you should recruit people that look super young because you know like the difference between like a, a 405 miler and a 415 miler in high school is massive in terms of the recruiting stage but sometimes it's just one year of high school so i was always thinking like it's not about like how good you are now it's just like about like when you stop improving. So if, if you're going to keep, if you're younger, you're probably, you know, physically, you're probably going to keep improving longer. And I think he was proven by that. He thought you like, how, how tall were you then? He thinks you'd probably grown about four. Like what's your height and weight now? And what do you think it was then? He, he thinks you've grown at least four or five inches. Oh, um, yeah, I'm, I've definitely, I mean, from, from freshman year, even, yeah, even from, even just from freshman year. Um, I mean, I've probably like grown. Yeah. I've grown at least two or three, two or three inches and probably put on like 15 to 20 pounds. Like, I mean, I'm completely, completely different. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I had, I did continue to grow. I, I think I might still be continuing to grow like um, on both ends of that. And then, you know, your, your senior year, um, I mean, you really had a breakout cross country season. You won the great American, you won the Nike regional and then you went to NXN and, and um, got smoked. Yeah, 28th, I think. So, you know, that, that's a good, good recruit. But people like that don't win NCAA titles in, in the sense of, I mean, we, we've done the research. We've looked at all the guys that have won since 2000. And basically, you know, you've got Jorge Torres and Dathan Ritzenheim, the footlocker champs. And then you've got, you know, a, a, we're talking about Americans here. And then there's a couple older BYU guys. But even those guys were like Connor Mance were like three time Foot Locker finalist, you know, top ten, fourth, stuff like that. The, the, the person that's normally twenty eighth in the country in high school doesn't win it. And I think that's one of the cool stories. Is like, I mean, I used to joke like, hey, if you're not top ten in, in the country in high school, you shouldn't be allowed to go pro because those are the guys that are, are, are the pro stars. And, and you weren't that, so I think you're giving hope to people. But I mean, do you recognize like how big of a jump that is? Like. I mean, I guess you made the really the, the the bigger jump. Like, when did you start thinking, "Oh, I can be one of the best guys in the country"? 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, probably like, probably like right away for whatever reason. I was probably super annoying when I first like um, met up with the guys over that gap year um, to train with because I was probably pushing the pace on everything, um, especially to like. I mean, just imagine being like a junior, or a senior on a program, and this dude just comes in and just starts pushing the pace on everything. So, I mean, I probably thought right away I could be good um, for whatever reason. I, I honestly think it's just because of the big switch in training. Um, cause I had a great high school coach, um, who like, who did not overtrain me at all. I mean, we did pretty low mileage and we did really, we did workouts that are honestly similar to, to Gibby, which are just like really hard workouts every now and then, and then super easy running. I mean, I would run with the women's team every day. Um, and yeah, and then I, then I switched to Gibby's training and I was like, oh, this is like, this is real. Like th- th- now I'm doing like, I'm doing like, ba- I'm basically maximizing like everything at this point. So, um, I'm like, I was kind of like, why not? Why can't I run fast now? But, but, but how, how big of a jump was that? Cause like in high school, Gibby thought you were running around 30, 35 miles a week. Then all of a sudden COVID hits, you take the gap year. And all of a sudden you're training with collegians at altitude and he thought you bumped up to around 60 to 65. So were you exhausted to basically double your mileage at altitude? I mean, not, not really. I mean, considering I was doing literally nothing out there. I mean, I was, I was a literal, I was literally a bum. I mean, we would, we would run and then I would sit around all day, um, hoping for something to happen, you know, hoping to end up running fast. And then, so I, I honestly, that, just having nothing to do with it kind of helped. Cause like, I just, it's all I looked forward to is, was running and like, uh, the, yeah, I mean, I was definitely tired at, at a lot of points. I mean, I mean, I be, I got it. I got injured like, like right away. Like when I did the training, like probably like six months into it injured. Um, but then I came back then in the spring and, and it worked out well. You do a lot of your training, uh, on easy days, close to six minutes per mile pace, which is quite a deal faster than I think that a lot of athletes. Was that an adjustment at all for you coming into college? You said you're running with the girls team in high school and now you're grinding at six flat pace on your easy days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was an adjustment. It made every run like at first kind of feel like, I mean, I was, I was going into runs, like putting so much emotional weight on it. Um, like the first couple weeks. And that's what we see a lot of freshmen d- doing um, here. Like, and it's just, it's just something you have to take it adjusted to. It, take, it takes a couple, like a month or two to at least. But uh, yeah, I mean, na- I mean, now after after you, I mean, after honestly for me, like after I had like a month or two of it, it just kind of turned into something that that is just that's just uh, like muscle memory. I mean, and we see that every year. Like our freshmen come in and struggle really hard you know, have, have probably really tough summers and, um, maybe a tough few weeks in the fall, but then eventually it turns into something that is just normal. And I mean, we do pre pre races, um, you know, the pace is up to us and they just naturally turn into maintenance pace, like six flat, like by the end, um, which makes for awkward pre races because we have to pass teams that are way better than us. Um, but it, you know, you don't have to apologize anymore because you've beaten everybody now individually. But so like during that gap year, like there's no races, right? At first in the fall. So like, did you realize you were getting in incredible shape? Because 
and, and how cool was that? Because you you run nine oh something, right? Like nine oh one or what was your your two mile PR? Nine oh three in the thirty two hundred. Yeah. And so then, but you start running these five thousands, and you must have been splitting faster than that because you ran a thirteen fifty, then a thirteen forty seven, yeah, yeah. and a thirteen forty. You like were you like just shocked, like, or did you just think, oh, everybody does this? Yeah, no, it's crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy. I mean, but I didn't. I wasn't really race. Uh, I wasn't competing. I was. I was racing. So like, I was. I was just hanging on for dear life in those races and. You're totally right. I mean, we would, I would always, um, whenever we came to the 3200 mark during the race, I would always make sure to like look over and look at the time. I'd be like, Jesus, like, I mean, um, so that was pretty crazy to, yeah. I, I mean, I PR'd in the third, I PR'd in the 3200 like three times that year, um, in route to the 5K. So that was pretty nuts. Um, but I just figured like if I could just like hold on to these guys, like everything would be fine. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a really fun year. I mean, that was, that was definitely like mind boggling at that point. Um, and maybe at that point I'm like, I thought I could start, I could win an NCAA title. Yeah. You ended up running 1327, which I think made you the fastest American actually before entering college, because most of them ran that their freshman year. You're actually only like what, three seconds behind Nico Young at the time. We ran 1324. And that's kind of when I became aware of you. And I guess John was at that meet when you ran 1327. I kind of remember giving him a hard time because he didn't interview you. That, look, hand up. Huge miss by me. 19-year-old kid who's on his gap year from high school runs 1327. That wasn't like perfect conditions either. You know, I think it was a little rainy and cold. Ben Flanagan was going out trying to get the Olympic standard or something. Like, it's like, yeah, I, total miss by me. Should have interviewed Graham at that meet and I didn't. But then, you know, when you go to Harvard, you've obviously got to adjust to the academics and you're not just sitting around running all day. You're not at altitude. And that was one of the things I was thinking. I was like, okay, he's maybe he's a big altitude responder. Now he's going to be training at sea level. So the times may not be coming down because, you know, altitude is like a legal drug. But, you know, your, your freshman year, you were kind of running as a number two or number three guy until you got to NCAAs and you were number, Harvard's number one. I think you were in the 20s at NCAAs. But then you got hurt, you know, in the spring and, and kind of wiped out your, your track season. And how hard was that? Was that, was that the first major injury you had? Like, was that really difficult to deal with? Oh yeah. I mean, it, it sucked. Cause like, I mean, yeah, it was really, it was a really tough couple months. months, uh, you know, just trying to, trying to figure it out. And it was definitely because of that, that freshman year adjustment, which is, which is really tough with like classes and then living in a dorm with people you don't know. Cause you're, you're basically, you're randomly assigned your roommates freshman year. Um, so it's almost like you don't have like a home at that point. Cause like I, I, my, my freshman year dorm turned into the, to the hockey, the hockey team's pregame location, uh, like Thursday nights, Friday nights, which is cool. Cause like they're the cool guys on campus and they'll say what's up to me every now and then, but, um, uh, it's not fun walking into the room and then everyone like looks at you and you're like, Oh, okay. The, the pregame's over. So I spent a lot of time just like hanging out on, on my teammates, like couches and stuff. Um, until it's time to go to bed. And I mean, I probably accredit a lot of that discomfort at first, like to, you know, maybe get, getting myself in a hole and then getting injured. I mean, and then the academic load is serious. So, um, but like I said, I mean, just, just like Gibby's training, I mean, it's just an adjustment. And, and now, you know, I, I feel like I'm on top of things and, you know, everyone, everyone on our team 
figures it out eventually. It just it just takes a little bit of an adjustment period. Yeah, one of the things I was curious about with Gibby's training, like you said, it was an adjustment to get to used to running those your easy days that fast, but you know now you're kind of just used to it, like the rest of the team. What what's the rationale behind running like six flat pace on easy days? Does he explain it to you guys what the purpose is? Wrong guy, got the wrong guy. I just li- I just listen to him. So for I mean honestly for me like when I was getting recruited I I thought it was cool because I'm like I just want to train as hard as possible and I I want a coach who who thinks it's safe and like will will guide me through it. So um, for me I think it's just cool because I can I can just I'm training harder than than most people. And before the show, you were talking to me and Weldon Johnson and kind of outlining a typical week of training. I thought that was really interesting. Our, our readers, sorry, our listeners might enjoy hearing that as well. So could you just outline what a typical week looks like for you in the fall season in terms of mileage and also kind of what you're doing each day to get to that mileage mark? Yeah, I mean, like when we're in the in the holding period, like peak mileage um, during cross-country season, and we work on a on a six day basis. So one day completely off. Um, and I'll do a hundred miles a week, um, with one double. So like a, t- a typical week would be 13 and a half run, just run on Monday, uh, you know, five mile double in the morning on Tuesday, and then like a 16 mile workout in the afternoon, Wednesday, I'll just do 16 miles straight run, like medium long run, Thursday usually just take off completely and then and then Friday is like another 16 17 mile um workout and then Saturday another 13 and a half just regular run and then Sunday 20 mile long run. And I got to ask as someone who went to high school in Massachusetts who still lives in Boston, what's your favorite place to run uh around Boston? That's such a tough question because it changes like it changes on the day. I mean, I, I, there's so many good places to run that uh, it's hard to keep track of. Like, like I like to say we have the second best facilities in the country after NAU because we just have so many places to run from, um, from campus. And then, you know, we also have the indoor and outdoor track. Uh, but I th- honestly think, God, is, that's, a, that's a hard question. I mean, we love Minuteman National Park. Like, I mean, everyone does who comes to Boston, but uh yeah, I mean, there's, we did a lot of new stuff this year. I like running in the Middlesex Fells too, which for a change, which is a nice little kind of trail you're on. Let me get back to this training. 16, I mean, he, Gabby told me you're, you're between, you know, 95, basically 95 miles a week. He didn't tell me it was six days a week. It's only one double. Although Andy Miller, if you're listening, my HEPs champ in the mile, he, one year he just transformed himself. I said, what'd you do all summer? He's like, I didn't have time to run twice a day, so I just ran 15 miles every single day, the same run. <laughs> he went from like 410 to four minutes a mile. But like a 16-mile workout, like can you give me an example of that? Like how, how long is the warm-up? How long is the cool-down? Like, uh, like, I mean, it's 20-minute warm-up, 20-minute cool-down. So that's like six miles already. So then if we did 10 miles of work, I mean, that's easy, that's easy to get to. Like if we just have like a like a 50-minute pace run, uh, that's that's ten miles right away. Like that's a ten mile tempo run. Um, you know, mostly on Tuesdays during the cross country season, it's just long stuff like that. Like just a long tempo run. Or uh, we started doing some some interesting stuff this year. Like 
breaking it up a little bit. Like we did like a three by five K once I did that with, with Acer. Um, that was a fun workout. Um, so like with those big workouts, it's actually pretty easy to get to mileage. And like, we, we joke around on the team that like workout days are like the easiest days basically to hit, to hit mileage. I mean, you don't even have to think about it because it just happens. Um, and then Fridays are like, Fridays are usually like, yeah, we'll do like a short, a shorter, um, like a shorter fartlek or a shorter like temper run and then do a bunch of repeats of something. So it's really not as, as hard to get to as you think. I mean, but, uh, it hurt, it hurts, you know, it's a lot of mileage. You don't have a lot of energy, uh, during the week, um, which is tough when you got to come home and do homework and stuff. So, um, I definitely, I definitely though, I, I treasure those moments like with, um, you know, with some of the guys, like, I mean, there, there's basically three of us this year doing the hundred mile weeks and that's me, Acer and Ben Rosa. So, um, you do kind of form a bond with those guys. Um, cause it's, it is really tough training, but like when you, when you have a couple dudes to do it with, it's, it's not that bad. But then the, the day off must be invigorating too. I mean, I, I used to, we used to never take days off, but then we ran into Paula Radcliffe at this physical therapy place. And she, I think she took one day off every other week, but I was like, mentally that must be so great mentally and physically like one day just oh it's amazing it's the best Um, i'm like we do it on thursdays because um it works out because you can just like load that day up with classes like from from bottom to top so that helps a lot too to like free up your fridays so you don't have you know you know i didn't have classes on friday this year which is amazing because i could just focus on the workout and stuff but yeah the off day is huge I, i love off days um, and I really think it helps with injury prevention too. I mean, to have a full day off, like you can, you can get a big, big night of sleep, like rest a whole day. Like, I think it helps, helps a lot. In fact, my, my off day is tomorrow and I'm, I'm, I'm pumped for it. So are, are you doing anything between NCAAs and, and the 5k or just, is it pretty much just taper stuff? Like working out. Yeah. I mean, are, do you keep your mileage up that high or, or yeah, you- I mean, I've, I've already done one work. I did a workout yesterday and I've got another one on, on Friday and then probably have two shorter ones next week. So it's, it's still, yeah, it's still pedal to the metal. So you talked about trying to hit the Olympic standard. Maybe that might be a time that a few guys would be interested in going for and BU. We've got an Olympic year next year. What do you think your chances are? Like, you, you know, you seem pretty confident coming into college. You were one of the best guys and now you are, were the best guy on Saturday. Like, do you think, what do you think your chances are of making an Olympic team this next year? I mean, I'm, I'm going to try. I'm not going to call my shot. Uh, although I know that'd be good for your, for your media stuff, but, uh, I'm not going to call my shot in that regards, but I mean, it's like a whole, I mean, I got to qualify for the, for the trials first. I'm not even, I'm not even qualified for NCAAs yet. So it's a long road. And, um, and who knows where I'm going to be at in, in June. Um, or July or whenever the trials are, but yeah, I'm going to give it my best shot. I mean, there's, there's only so many Olympics you can, you can do, especially on the track. So, or so many Olympic cycles that you're able to like go for. Um, so yeah, I'm going to try my best. Yeah. I remember, uh, hey. Chris Derrick back in 2012 when he finished fourth in the 10,000, you know, he came away and he was thinking, man, I'm going to be so much better four years from now. And it turned out that was his best shot. That was as close as he ever came. So yeah, yeah. you got to strike when the iron's hot with this stuff. Exactly. Yeah. 
I was thinking of Chris Jarrett because he was so good in college, but never won NCAA title. And, you know, I don't know, like your Achilles heel a year or two ago and, and Nico, same with Nico Young. Oh, they can't kick. But Coach Gibby, I, I was asking him yesterday, I said, you know, last year you guys were like 10 seconds behind the NAU guys. This year you're like 30 seconds ahead of them. I'm like, do you really think Graham's improved like 40 seconds? He's like, well, he's improved a lot, but he's like, I actually think he may have improved more from freshman year to last year than from last year to this year because you were hurt freshman year. He's like, he couldn't really kick freshman year. He's like, last year he was running 356 in the mile, made a huge gap, huge jump. And then, you know, this year he just knew that he could do it. He was up there and he wasn't going to let that gap fall. He's like, last year the reason why he was behind is because they, they got ahead. You know, this year you were in mentally, you yeah, were in yeah, physically. Yeah. But – it, it still seems like you're on upswing because I was like asking about the Olympics. He's like, well, we'll see. Like we're a developmental sport. We'll see what the next, you know, we'll see what he looks like in the spring, but I'm not going to feel guilty about this. Why do we have to wait till June guys? You guys know what's happening. I think it's February 1st, John. The Olympic marathon trials on February 3rd, for which Graham does not have a qualifier and I'm sure <laughs> has no intentions to get a qualifier. I don't hey, know what look, you're going look, with this, Robin. I, I'm not going to feel bad about this because when Graham ran that 1327 in, in high school in the gap year, I thought, wow, does Graham know that he could go to Stanford for free? But I'm too good of friends with Gabby. I'm like, I'm not going to put that in Graham's head. He could have gone to Stanford for, saved his family like 300 grand. That's post taxes. So it's like 400 grand. Anyways, but I asked Gabby, I said, hey, is he a good student? He's like, yeah, he's an econ major, takes it pretty seriously. He did some research last summer with uh, a guy you may know, Paul Gompers. I was like, holy crap. So those of you who don't know who Paul Gompers is, well, former Harvard runner, let me should ask Graham. Graham, do you know what Paul is most famous for? No, of course. I mean, I know he ran uh, 215 as like a, what, like a 20-year-old? Was, a, was it a world junior record at the time? I think he might have been in high school. Yeah, might have been in high school. I, mean, I think he might have been actually a he was a freshman at that point. So he was probably 18 years old. I think he ran yeah. Birmingham. He showed me the, the pictures and stuff. It's pretty crazy. So if you can do 215 as a junior, you're 21. I was like, you know, so I, I did ask Coach Gibby what you could run the marathon. because I, I, I was asking him, like, what event do you see him in? He's like, Oh, 5K? He could make the Olympics, 10K. I said, what about the marathon? Can you go up there? He's like, oh, he'd be a good marathoner too. So he, I said, well, what can you run for a marathon right now? What do you think he said? I don't think I can finish. With these super shoes, man, you you only have to get to halfway. They, they take you the second. Huh? <laughs> no, I don't think I would he finish. Said, uh, Gompers ran 215 back in the day. The super shoes are worth a couple of minutes. That's 213. He said 210 to 212. And I thought, oh, that Why would he say that? <laughs> I'm not trained for the marathon at all. I appreciate it, but uh, you're running 16 miles every day. So look, screw indoors. Last year, by the way, this needs to get on the podcast. What you did at the indoor Hebs, um, it's a shame I wasn't broadcasting it because I would have been loved to have given due to that. You tripled up. You ran the 3K, the 5K, and then you came back and ran the DMR like 20 DMR anchor like 20 minutes later, and because Harvard was in it for the team title. I just missed out on that, but you dominated outdoors. Congratulations on winning that one outdoors. But that that was heroic to me, and I just I love how you're so into the team because I, I think it makes it way more fun. And Gibby's like, oh, that might have been coaching malpractice. I'm like, Gibby, nobody cares that they bombed NCAA indoors. Now he's an NCAA champion. It worked out fine. He loves his teammates. They love him. I, I just thought that was cool, by the way. So, 
But since you since you gave it all for your team last year, you can skip indoors this year. We need to pick up a half marathon qualifier. Hop in the marathon. Robert, this is absurd. Boston's the that center of the indoor track universe this season. We got the BU meets. We got indoor heps at Harvard. And then we got the NCAA championships in Boston. So Graham's got to do the Oh, NCAAs are in Boston? Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, actually, I'm curious about this, though. How do you assess your kick, Graham? Do you think you have a good kick? I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to find out because I, I never really had um, – I guess the only time I had a short kick was um, in Madison. And that probably – that probably the last four hundred of that race probably wasn't even under sixty. I don't I don't know. It was so sloppy and just gross. So I don't know how good my kick is right now. I mean, I would imagine it's not as good as it was, you know, when I'm in indoor season last last year, just because I've been doing cross country training for a while. But I mean, G- Gibby just likes to think that like if you if you're strong enough, you're gonna be able to kick at the end of a race. You don't have to like develop foot speed or anything like that. It's just like if you're relaxed throughout the whole race, you're gonna be able to at least close and like I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know where I'm at with my with my kick or anything. I just I just know I'm like decently fit and can hopefully run something fast, you know. And then we'll work on the on the kicking stuff for indoors when the races get shorter, like three K or the mile if I do any of that. And but when you think of yourself, do you think I'm a strength guy or I'm a kicker? I mean it have to it'd have to be a strength guy, right? Like just with Gibby, I mean every everything is strength for me like with, with Gibby, but I feel like I have gotten a lot better at kicking. I mean, in high school, I'd broken 60 in the 400, like once, twice, like, and that's in training and racing. Um, and I'd never broken two in the 800. So it's definitely something we've worked on a lot and I've, I've improved on a lot. Oh, wow. That's, that's just like me. I got made fun of, I was a, you know, I was like our fifth man in college in cross country and they made fun of me and the Dartmouth team for not breaking two. So you can <laughs> go from not breaking two as a high schooler to an NCAA cross champion. We know that now. They didn't throw you on any four by fours in high school. I feel like the best distance kid always gets thrown. No, no, not really. Point. I mean, I was dreadful at the four. Like I, it was, it was rough. I mean, I did an open four once, but uh, my coach made me work out in the morning. Um, I think he was just trying to humiliate me because I showed up on the line. And I was I was shot. I mean, I think I ended up running fifty nine in in uh, maybe in trainers. So, um, yeah, I didn't. We didn't have a lot of opportunities to run fast four hundreds in high school or anything. Um, did a bunch of two hundreds though, and I got smoked by my teammates. Like that was my least favorite workout in the books. Like I, I struggled super hard with two hundreds um, in high school. But now you've run two twenty three in the thousand, three fifty six in the mile. So I, I think you're doing pretty good. Didn't I think someone told me? How am I making this up? He's not class. You're always not classically fast, but he can change gears really quickly. Sounds like something. Give you did a tell me that? Yeah. Okay. So I did hear that. Hey, you 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 like Inga Britson. He he's not classically fast, but he's good <laughs> enough to win the Olympic gold and. The Man, you just and- compared me to Inga Britson and said I could run a, a two ten marathon in the past five minutes. Who? Who do you think I am? Yeah, well, you're pretty good. So, uh, as I said before the show, though, I need to talk to your mom. I think she got a picture of me with you. Your freshman year at NCA, she wanted her picture with me. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. Why do they want their picture with me? I need to have my picture with him. And I, and I told John Gullett, like, when Nick Willis was a high school senior going into freshman year of college, 
he wanted his picture with Weldon and me. And I was like, does this guy realize how good he's going to be? So I hope someday you've got a couple Olympic medals like him. That would be cool. It's been fun having you on the program. Yeah, Robert, we got to end this before you become just a complete grand blank stand right now. No. <laughs> veering dangerously close to that territory. But it is it is cool to see uh, a Haps guy win the NCAA title. It never happened before. It did happen on the women's side 10 years ago. Uh, Abby D'Agostino, now Abby Cooper. Yeah, Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Have a happy Thanksgiving. And I'm looking forward to this race at BU. I know it doesn't have the stakes of an NCAA championship, but I think we're going to see a lot of fast times there. I'm excited to see that. I'm excited for this indoor season. And then we got the 2024. It's an Olympic year for everyone. So really excited to see what you can do the rest of the year. And congratulations again on a fantastic race in Charlottesville. Yeah, thanks for having me on. If you like this Grand Blanks podcast, you love the Let's Run.com Supporters Club. You get a second podcast every week, all the Let's Run exclusive content. You can get huge savings on running shoes. And if you join right now, this week only, through once annual sale, you save 50% for a year. You get a free t-shirt if you join for your year. Super soft shirt, great shirt. Go to Let's Run.com slash subscribe. Use code GOAT, G-O-A-T-50, GOAT50 to save 50%. Link in the show notes. And also, you can still save on Cyber Monday deals. You want to save 50% on the Nike Pegasus 40, the most popular running shoe on Let'sRun.com? Check out the link in the show notes or go to the Let'sRun.com homepage. Link in the show notes right now. Huge savings on running shoes and the Let'sRun.com supporters club. Thanks for listening.